Sorry, what did I miss? Everything. Anglo thieves. Gettle's gone. Alina, are you fake texting? It's super important. Oh, I might as well just growl, that'd be about it. I have failed the sisterhood. I hear an awful lot of judgment in your voice. We're not here to judge. Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 21 of Anglofees, where we have all of your Dracula needs covered. And we found a lot of Dracula needs. Let me tell you, people, we have seen some shit. I'm Raiden. I'm Alina. And I'm Kaylee. And we are joined by our senior vampire correspondent, Cleolinda Jones. What up, fuck truck? <laughs> you made me promise. You made me I promise to say remembered. <laughs> I forgot about that completely. That was my design. <laughs> I mean, hey guys. Hey guys. And, uh, yeah, we are here to discuss Dracula because it's June. When else are you going to talk about vampires? Because we're sadly out of Hannibal to discuss for the year, but as we can see, (laughs) we will find ways to shoehorn it in. As it were. Um, So we thought that we'd start with talking a little bit about how we became aware of the cultural icon that is Count Dracula. And it's not just Sesame Street, but it's a little bit Sesame Street. <laughs> I hadn't even thought about that. Do you know how long it took the penny to drop for me when I went, Count Von Count, because vampires have to count things. Oh my god. <laughs> I was an adult when I realized that. Yeah. Sesame Street is just the gift that keeps on giving as you get older. Bless its heart. So, the the first time that I saw anything that had anything to do with Dracula that wasn't Sesame Street was a 1987 production at the Children's Theater of Minneapolis, of Minnesota. Um, it was it's not the the play that you know, was on Broadway and everything. It was an original production. But I was nine, (laughs) and it scared the fucking shit out of me. And I slept with the lights on for years after that. And I would burrow under my blankets with just my little nose sticking out for a very long time. It was terrifying to me. I don't remember anything about the production other than just raw terror. How about a you, lot Kaylee? Of your childhood has scared you quite a bit. Hasn't a lot it? of my child, yes. As as I think about all of these things, all these stories, I keep telling them. Here's the thing that scared me. Yes, that is true. We're glad we're here to help you through this healing process. <laughs> uh, for me, I can't remember a specific moment just because the figure of Dracula, particularly the Bela Lugosi version, has always been this sort of standard bearer of pop culture that's ever present, even if you've never seen the film. Which I did eventually see the film, but I wasn't until I was older. But when I was about 11, my grandmother gave me a copy of the book. 
and I still have it. It's this gorgeous sort of black hard copper hardcover copy with gold lettering from the sixties. And I never got around to reading it until I was a teenager, but it was one of the books I remember my mum reading. So, but I did when, when I eventually got around to reading it, and I sort of made the connection. Oh, that's the one with the film with the guy in the top hat with the weird hair, and that was on The Simpsons. Oh, that's where I saw it. So basically, The Simpsons is the standard bearer for every pop piece of pop culture I've ever experienced. But also kind of tied into the fact that the main vampires I read when I was younger, which were, oh god, it was Anne Rice. <laughs> and then oh, just well. noticing the connections. Really, it was all this sort of big melting pot of just bad metaphors and weird wigs. And that's what it did for me. And The Simpsons. Because if you've never seen The Simpsons' Dracula parody from Three of Horror, it's genuinely really funny. The problem is I have actually no idea when I first heard about Dracula because I certainly didn't grow up with Sesame Street or or The Simpson or anything like that. And I cannot remember vampires being any kind of presence in in Russian like children's entertainment. It could have possibly been um like a dubbed version of Interview with the Vampire sometime in the nineties. probably. And if it was that, then it was a very bad and weird dub. So it's no surprise I don't remember it. <laughs> no comment. I have no idea. Like I don't. I can't <laughs> even remember the first time I heard the word Dracula. Are are vampires a thing in Russian folklore? Um, no, I don't think so. Like certainly not this westernized idea of a vampire. Um. I, th- I guess Russia might have more of that original Eastern European, some of it, but not very much. So, but like, I do know, for example, in Russian uh, vampire lore, we, like the vampires aren't just killed through a stake in the heart. It has to be a very specific tree, the name of which in English I can't remember right now. <laughs> So when I moved to Canada and they just like the stakes can seem to be made of any random wood you want. That was kind of a surprise to me. Um, I was like, but yeah, but don't you need it to be like that tree? But apparently Western vampires are a little easier to kill. You don't have to go hunting for specific trees. That or Canada just isn't prepared for the vampire apocalypse. It could be either. Fair enough. (laughs) Well, they've got to find out at some point. (laughs) Um, let me look it up because I'm um, I'm curious what the tree is. Oh, it's an aspen in English. Oh, there are loads of aspen trees in Canada. I'm sure. So there we go. Many, so many, we many, Russians many. believe that it has to, you have to have your steak made out of aspen. But apparently in the West, people just want, I'm sorry, Russia may have enough trees to go around. But in Europe, they're a little more of a precious commodity. Okay. <laughs> European vampire is going to be picky. Rub your... Rub your steak with a crushed up aspirin and that will do it. <laughs> there's there's a number of different woods, uh, depending on your legend. Some of them say hawthorn, some of them are real into the the wild rose. I don't know that you can make a steak out of that per se. Uh, interestingly in the Bella Lugosi version that I watched last night, they they totally issue garlic for wolfbane. Mm-hmm. Which I I don't even know that I've really seen that a whole lot, except in uh, you know versions that kind of conflate vampires and werewolves. So that was kind of mm-hmm. well. Remember, um, there was a discussion that I think you had on one of the made of fail about how well the original Eastern European lang- um, 
legends don't actually differentiate the werewolf from the vampire that much necessarily there was this kind of one supernatural creature and then somewhat more modern you know retellings of the folklore really ended up splitting them apart into one that was more of a blood drink and one that was more bestial that that is some old school made to fail that was the first one i was on i think it might have been like Episode four, episode seven. Seven, I think it was. (laughs) Yeah, um, I'm probably mispronouncing it. It started off in uh, Greece and moved to the Baltic states. It was the Vrikolakis, the Vrikolak, and it was. uh, It basically meant both. It was. They didn't really distinguish, and eventually it did kind of separate. But um, I mean, I haven't read every vampire thing ever, so I'm not going to say people don't usually use that one. But, you know, Nosferatu is the much, you know, trendier one that kind of got used in literature in the 1800s. I want to say it got used before Dracula, but that's definitely what popularized, you know, that version of it. And then you have Varney, where they're like, well, you know, vampires come from Norway. So, sure. (laughs) Yeah. Like in Russian, uh, there is a word, Vurdalak, which I actually think I see used more often than vampire because vampire definitely evokes uh, a kind of modern Western idea of it. Whereas if you use Vordalak, you're invoking like a much more Slavic folkloric version. Yeah, I think there's also a version of the word that starts with V-U-L. Volkadlak? Something. Which, um, which actually includes the word wolf. So I think that one is much more werewolf oriented. Yeah. And this is really like back in the day, you know, type stuff, um, hundreds, hundreds of years back. And I mean, it, it's so interesting because, um, the really big vampire scare was in the 1700s and Maria Teresa, who was, you know, Marie Antoinette's mother, uh, Empress Maria Teresa sent, was it Von, Von Sweden? I can't even remember. Sent a physician out to go investigate this and was like, there was this whole thing about, oh, there's tons of vampires and we're staking all of these alleged vampires and this, there's this huge scare throughout Austria. And he came back and he was like, no, it's this weird panic. Vampires aren't real. What's going on? So, you know, it was kind of this, you know, proto Van Helsing who didn't believe in vampires and was going through the countryside being like, guys, calm down. What is this? <laughs> And so they really kind of had to bring it back with, uh, was it Byron who first mentioned it in a, a poem? And then there was Lenore, this long, anyway. What was Carmilla? When was that? Uh, it was earlier in the century. I want to say it was the 1830s. I can't remember offhand. Looking at it? Yeah. Um, 1872. That's yeah, that's Carmilla. What What was the other one I'm thinking of? Christabel? Well, I'm thinking of something earlier. Carmilla is the 1870s. Clearly, I was not prepared to talk about literature today. (laughs) Christabel, you're right, by the way. It's it's Coleridge's Christabel. Okay. See, uh, I came prepared to talk about movies. Um, No, I mean, I've, I've spent enough time reading up on this. You'd think I would know this. I mean, and of course, there's there's Polidori. And what what's really interesting is that Lord Ruthven is kind of the prototype for the gentleman vampire. And Varney's kind of a takeoff on that, but that's what you really see, uh, kind of the roots of Dracula, 
in the gentleman vampire who's going to infiltrate society. And but but by the end of the century, you also have all of these, you know, fears and phobias coming in, like this fear of pestilence, fear of foreigners, you know, contagious disease. Uh, I, I will argue the idea of there being a fear of women or there being misogyny or patriarchy. I, I actually would argue that in terms of Lucy's desire to have all the husbands and then she actually gets them through the blood transfusion and they all remember her. They all have, you know, her sacred memory and they all love her. And she's never like actually punished for this, you know, desire to have tons of men, you know, that, which is, you don't then see in the movies at all. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we will talk about this. Yeah. We, we'll talk about that. Yeah. But yeah. It, it's interesting to kind of watch the, because um, the vampire scare of the 1700s, it was not a fictional thing. It was very much a real life. What the hell is going on with you people kind of thing. And then it kind of comes into, um, I mean, there are some mentions in like Greek legends way, way back, you know, kind of the, the phantom bride, phantom bridegroom kind of thing. Um, but mostly it really comes into literature in the 1800s. And Dracula at the end, is that 1897? 1897, yeah. Yeah, that's when it kind of coalesces into this pop cultural iconic figure. Which is, I think, one of the reasons we're still talking about you know, this figure today, it's like the epitome of the vampire. It it kind of combines everything that came before. You kind of have the gentleman who then also has this really feral quality, you know, monstrous. It, it's like the, the big three monsters are Frankenstein's monster, the wolfman, and Dracula. And maybe you can throw Jekyll and Hyde in there, kind of. But, like, those are the three big, iconic, you know, that covers all your bases by the time, you know, you've got all the different aspects. Mm-hmm. Cool story, bro. <laughs> and for anybody who's, who, like me, is trying to fit uh, chronologically the Beast of Javadin into this, that's uh, 1760s. Yeah. Which I so, guess a little bit contributed to, you know, that era's supernatural beast kind of fears yeah it was one of those non-fiction what the hell is wrong with you people we have to send someone out here to figure out what's going on Mm -hmm. kind of things Mm -hmm. and that's so interesting stuff you missed in history class did an episode in september of last year on the the new england vampire panic of the 1700s which was very interesting and we will link to that in the show notes now, I want to say Mercy Brown was in the late 1800s, 19... There there was like a, a New England vampire scare very late in the century, also. Because mm-hmm. I seem to remember being Mercy, like Mercy black Brown and white Road photography. Island. Mercy Brown vampire incident. <laughs> 1892. There we go. Because I remember docu- it did predate yeah. Dracula, yeah. One of the best documented cases of the exhumation of a corpse in order to perform rituals to banish an undead manifestation. <laughs> okay. do, do you know they are still doing that shit today? 
I can't remember if it was Poland or Romania. Like, they are still exhuming bodies and staking them just to be sure. <laughs> Does, well, do you, you know, <laughs> you can from, just yeah. <laughs> always be prepared. Cleo, since you, you've done this reading, um, do you remember off the top of your head which cultures do the bury at the crossroads? Is that Eastern European? Oh, Jesus. Um, I am not. don't mean to put you in a spot, just in case you remember, because that's one of the pieces of lore that I, I also remember that doesn't seem to come up in the Western retellings a lot anymore. Except I think like TV shows like Supernatural might use it still. But I think in the like the Eastern European Slavic folklore, there's also the uh, you have to bury the corpse at the crossroad is one of the um, vampire methods. There's so many different... Even even regionally, they, I, I can't remember offhand, um, there's so many different regional variations of, you know, you have to use an iron spike, you have to use a nail, it has to be an aspen stake, it's a hawthorn stake, it's a rowan stake, actually I don't think I've ever done rowan, it has to be oak, it has to be this, you know, I, I really liked the white horse in the cemetery that they use in the 79 movie oh yeah i don't think anybody else uses that that's i mean which is a real legend but i don't know that any other movie goes for that Uh, it's like an inverse unicorn yeah (laughs) google is telling me romania um but that's google and i don't know what how reliable this particular source is but it sounds Eastern European. Yeah, I, I seem to remember there's a lot of lore in Serbia. Like I know we we kind of focus on Romania, but like Austro-Hungarian Empire, Serbia, just that whole area has just a ton, ton of you know lore in there. Actually, um, I want to say Stoker read a book called. Oh, I I know. A woman named Emily something wrote a nonfiction book about having lived in Transylvania. I think her husband was a diplomat. And there's like passages from it that are just nearly, you know, when Jonathan's writing in his diary at the beginning, it's it's very close to, uh, God, what is it called? This is going to drive me crazy. Um, <laughs> I, I've, Emily... Gerard, that's that's who I'm trying to think of. She wrote one called Transylvanian Superstitions, um, the Land Beyond the Forest. That's what I was trying to think of. Okay, so she wrote at least two books about it, and a lot of that informs, uh, in a non-fictional sense, the actual book Dracula. But mm-hmm. um, I mean, he did he did research. He didn't he didn't make a ton of that up. Before we move on from mythology, since it is kind of a lot of it comes from the Eastern European origins, I'm going to mention one more um, kind of Russian-Ukrainian Slavic one. Um, The word is upir, and it's kind of almost more of a cross between what we think of a vampire and a zombie because it's uh, it's a dead sorcerer who's going to get up but but then drink blood and he can cause various uh, pestilences in the surrounding areas. So apparently we in Eastern Europe were very prolific about these things. Maybe we just had a lot of draughts and dead cattle and whatnot. <laughs> well, I mean, it is interesting that, you know, there there is this fear of uh, pestilence and 
disease and the idea, I mean, all of the rats in Dracula and the idea that it's going to spread and you keep, you know, towards the Dracula type end of things. There's always this fear of like, we will multiply, we will create a new family, Lucy, we will have, we will overtake the earth. And I'm like, that's, that's a terrible idea in terms of just the ecosystem. <laughs> predator. Why would you do that? Like, you can't sustain why would you do that because it's a metaphor for disease and pestilence that Haven't does you not seen actually the make Ethan sense Hawk movie? <laughs> <laughs> all right <laughs> i'm sorry i'm sorry but whereas in the earlier parts of the century it was a much more personal, which, which you do see uh, an element of in, in Dracula, of like subverting personal relationships. Um, Lord Ruthven and his friend Aubrey and uh, managing to seduce his sister. You know, it's much more they're coming for our women kind of, you know, type <laughs> stuff earlier on. It's very much, you know, Carmilla is going to seduce Laura, uh, Geraldine and Christabel. And towards the end of the century you have this more you know macrocosmic industrial revolution everything's going to hell and the vampire represents all of these fears we have mm-hmm. about moving towards the 20th century mm-hmm. well let's move into the 20th century and maybe talk about some of these <laughs> movies we've been promising to talk about <laughs> Remind me All to right. go back for the coming to our woman thing when we start talking about Frank Langella. Hey. <laughs> hey, yo. Can you hear me and Raiden swoon? We'll be swooning a lot later on. <laughs> Unexpected developments. So we're going to start off oh, with Tell me about it. Before we go to Bela Lugosi, uh, Bela Lugosi, I found out when I was doing research into the various adaptations that there's apparently a rumored 1920s Russian Dracula movie which would have been like a copyright infringement one probably um, that is rumored because there's no surviving prints or really records, but it shows up being mentioned in like letters and personal correspondences. And this would have been, you know, I guess made at the tail end of the revolution, um, maybe in the middle of it. So uh, it would, it's interesting if it existed, what it would look like and how it was maybe affected by the political climate at the time. But um, unfortunately was, there's, yeah, there's no, there's no surviving prints of it. So I we can only definitely, assume. definitely see how that would fit into the revolution. Wow. That is, I'm, I wonder if anybody has ever done that idea since. Yes. Um, Warhol's blood for blood. blood for for Dracula. Dracula yeah. With Udo Kier. <laughs> Oh god! And he's on that little poster that I showed you guys. You know, Dracula through the ages. Yeah, Dracula. Did you say that, Dracula be... or Dracula? Dracula. Dracula. <laughs> there does seem to be a small three-minute clip on YouTube of a Dracula dated from 1920, which is said to be the silent Russian film you're talking about. That is but... apparently a fake, because I. Um, I saw one link to it, which then in, in brackets qualified, judging by the modern haircuts on the actors, it's probably a fake. <laughs> oh. oh, that's a shame because yeah, the, that's thing, a the fact that Dracula is wearing is fabulous. If you're going to go to the trouble of making a fake, do your fucking research. Jesus Christ. 
Mm-hmm. So, yeah, then I guess Bela Lugosi... Like, okay, I haven't seen the Nosferatu. Has anybody actually... I've seen, seen clips it. of it. I have both versions, yeah. Mm-hmm. The Klaus well, Kinski one, the, the Werner Herzog, that's disturbing. I haven't that's seen that one. really dark. I mean, Isabella Gianni's gorgeous in it, but it has a really weird, ambiguous, downer ending. I mean that in a good way, but it's it's super atmospheric. It's really weird. I I believe I've sat through the original one. I I know it's on that super disc of like every vampire movie <laughs> they could get the rights to. You know, horrible, sexy vampire, and <laughs> I'm so disappointed <laughs> I didn't get to sit down and watch those. There's like 20. It's great. But yeah, Nosferatu sick is uh, is on there. Hmm. Nosferatu is one of those movies that's really fascinating to watch just because you can pinpoint every single camera trick or angle or shot that has been used in every horror movie since, or even every movie since, actually. The use of shadows in particular. But I think it's one that requires you to have the proper venue to watch it. I watched it, it was on TV, like one o'clock in the morning and it was introduced by a drag queen and a Count Orlock impersonator. <laughs> it was very strange. They seem to be filming it in their kitchen as well. I don't know if they live together and this is just what they do at the weekends. Um, but I feel like if you had like, if you're watching it in a proper theatre with someone playing the organ in the corner, it would be a really amazing experience. And I do know that a couple of cinemas in Edinburgh do that for Halloween. If so, they would do that here at at the Alabama Theater, which is a big, you know, like, show palace type theater. That would actually, with, with an organ, that that would be really great. Um, that's also the movie that actually introduced the concept of sunlight killing vampires. I mean, I looked into this, what is it, 1923? It, that idea really did not appear anywhere until that movie. It was always, oh, he's weakened by sunlight, it'll be fine, don't worry about it. But... I mean, it's amazing to me that, like, that's the movie that everybody, that has caused everybody to cite Sunlight Kills Vampires as, like, this holy law. And I'm like, guys, didn't hurt Big Daddy. I don't know what we're talking about here. (laughs) You know, Dracula's tooling around in Piccadilly in the middle of the day. It's really an a la carte kind of pick-your-own-rule thing. Yeah, the um, the Franklin Jello one actually has like a really good quote about it, and we did find a very interesting making of. I think it's uh, we found it on YouTube. I think it's probably taken off the DVD anniversary, so we'll we'll mm-hmm. throw in some of those uh, tidbits when we get yeah. to it. It's a uh, it's about forty five minutes long in multiple parts. I have the DVD. I wonder if that's the DVD I have. Just... It sounds like it was something like the thirtieth anniversary because it's thirty five like this year. Yeah. So it would make mm-hmm. sense if on the 30th, and, five years ago, they released one. Yeah, and the the interviews were with, like, currently old Frank Langella and not past super smoking hot Frank Langella. <laughs> <laughs> I can't. I can't. and I have been, like, on Twitter and in text to each other for, like, three days now. Yeah, still yeah. Hot. I know yeah, that I've been hot. on about the weird hotness of Frank Langella for, like, a week, and I'm not sorry. See, that was my first Dracula. It was very close. It was very close because that was the year 
that the Gary Oldman Dracula came out. It was 1992. I was 13, so you can imagine what formative effect this had on me. And AMC was running the Frank Langella movie to be all like, oh, you know, see also if you're interested in. So I saw that probably less than a month before I went and saw uh, the Francis Ford Coppola Dracula in the theater. And I was 13, so they should not have let me in, but nobody cared, apparently, back in the 90s. And they just (laughs) let me and my best friend... No parents in sight. In retrospect, really glad of that. <laughs> that would have been an incredibly awkward movie experience. Holy crap. But um it was it was so weird because we we had a speed reading test when I was like sixth grade, I think. I must have been eleven. And they wanted to find something they were sure none of us had read to see how fast we could read. So they gave us the passage where Mina is traipsing through Whitby looking for Lucy and finds her on that bench and takes her home. And I I apparently was the fastest reader in the room because, of course, I would be. And I ended up going to check the book out from the library. And I got this, it may or may not have been abridged, I'm not sure, this illustrated version by Greg Hildebrandt. And I was obsessed with that book as like an 11, 12-year-old. I actually have managed to get my own copy of it. This is what I was saying about, you know, collecting (laughs) copies of the book. And so then, but I hadn't seen any of the movies. I think I had that cultural osmosis of Bela Lugosi where we all kind of feel like we've seen it, even if we haven't. So then I saw the Franklin Jello on TV and less than a month later, probably saw the Gary Oldman one. And it was years later before I saw the Christopher Lee version. So that that's kind of out of order there, but <laughs> and I I don't know that I actually literally sat down and watched the Bella Lugosi until last night because I was watching it going. Clearly, I have not seen this before. There's there's a possum, and two armadillos, and a wasp that has a coffin. We have to share that screenshot. We because will. Yeah, I have them. I made them because nobody would, people kept arguing with me. That's not a possum. I'm like, no, I have face down possums. Okay. Five inches from my face. That is a possum. All right. I wonder where they filmed it. That there um, were possums. Like, well, not the, which the, the, the Todd Browning one, the Dave Bell, the ghosty one. The I, believe that was filmed, one. I believe that was filmed on a set at, at Universal Studios because so while they were filming that, the, they were making the Spanish language version of it on the same set on, in the evening when the English language crew had shut down. And there is actually a pretty reasonable argument to be made that the Spanish language version is better. Although because it's in Spanish and everyone sounds really cheery and soap opera-y, it's <laughs> I've heard it's really good. I keep meaning to get the DVD anniversary, I don't know, 75th anniversary? That has both of them. Disc 1 is all the stuff about the English language and disc two is the Spanish one. I keep meaning to get that. They're they're far, they're far more interesting on a directorial level. I think the thing that about the Todd Browning version is he can be quite stagnant with things like the movement of the camera and the way that things are framed. Whereas with the Spanish language one, they're clearly having a bit more fun with it, and women are wearing slightly lower cut tops because <laughs> the Spanish language. It's all fun. I loved the huge wide shots of the sets, though, like the stairs that he you know, throws Renfield down at the end. That was gorgeous. I had no idea they had these huge, gigantic sets. So, but what you're telling me is that they specifically imported armadillos to this set. Possums. They were like, no, no, this is a set. We have to go get these. 
Not wolves. No, no. No, we're not. I don't know if they couldn't afford wolves or they want something better than wolves. We're going to upgrade to armadillos. Nobody else has these. I, I'm just so astonished. <laughs> <laughs> well, this stuff had s- a relatively <clears throat> decent budget because Universal were making all of their money from these horror movies. You know, the Phantom of the Opera had come out about seven or eight years beforehand and had made them a fortune. And this was the era when everyone was kind of jumping on the Universal bandwagon making these um, horror films. So, you know, they, they might as well have gone all out. And it was a big hit on Broadway at the time as well. So they already had the built-in audience for those yeah. that had read it, those hadn't. Bella Lugosi actually um, originated the role on Broadway. Now, there were two productions three years before. I think they were both in England. But there's a hilarious, it's literally like the, the last sentence, second to last sentence of Montague Summers' Vampires and Vampirism, which was written in the 20s. And he just sort of dismissively is like, and the play is pretty indifferent. It's not that great. And currently on Broadway, actors, 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 and Bella Lugosi. Nah. <laughs> and you're just like, you have no idea what's about to happen. You have no idea. So... <clears throat> Did Lugosi originate the Welcome to my castle, this is Transylvania accent I'm for Dracula? I think that was actually his accent, wasn't it? it was, is that why? I mean, I think I think so, but in terms of had anybody... I don't know how they played it in the, um, the overseas, the England versions, but like... People really copied the accent, the actual intonations after Bella Lugosi. Like, mm-hmm. in a way, a lot of people have either been playing Bella Lugosi as Dracula, or specifically reacting against it ever since. Except Franklin Jaw. <laughs> <laughs> now, he Still actually, not sorry. <laughs> when they uh, revived, I don't know if they revived the, the Hamilton Dean play, or if it was a slightly different version, he originated it on Broadway in 78 and Jeremy Brett was originating the, you know, the England, the London stage version, I think pretty much around the same time. And Edward Gorey did the sets and the costumes, which you see a little in the movie when Lucy has that amazing dress with the sleeves. Yeah. The, the ama- I'll have to get a screen cap of that somewhere. The amazing spiderweb looking, you know, sleeves. I, I feel like that that has a very gory look to it. I don't know if that's actually from the the stage version. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> to your question about whether the revival was that, so according to Wikipedia, it, the 1977 with Langella and Jeremy Brett was a revival of the Dean 24 stage yeah. play. So. Because that that is the play oh, that switches damn. Lucy and Mina for no reason. Yeah. And yeah. And, and turns whichever one of them into Seward's daughter. Yeah, I don't Lucy think Seward's daughter and Mina is Van Helsing's is daughter. Van Helsing's daughter. But their personalities are switched. Yeah. And not not always because uh, there's like two different versions of the Hamilton Dean play. There's the Hamilton Dean and then there's the Balderston uh, revision of the so on and so forth and there are versions in which uh, I think the Lugosi version Mina is just there because reasons I, I don't know that she's actually Van Helsing's daughter 
in that one. Mm-hmm. It's so confusing trying to talk about these in terms of each other because you're like Mina Lucy and Lucy Mina. <laughs> yeah. And in relation to the book and who's... I think the movie did this because from that interview, and the interview, by the way, for those who want to look it up on YouTube, is called uh, Revamping Dracula. Um, Franklin Jellis... Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Jellis said that when he first saw the two actresses, um, Kate Nelligan and Jan, um, I don't remember her last name off the top of my head. So he assumed that they would be playing the reverse roles because he was assigning them the personalities that they generally have in the book and other adaptations. So when they said, Well no, that one that one's losing that one Mina, he he genuinely went, Was there a typo in the script? Yeah. <laughs> I was like, No, 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 we're just gonna play them with the opposite stories and personalities. Okay. Because <laughs> reasons. That's because reasons. Because reasons. He he also says in in one of the interviews that during the run of the play men would come up to him and go okay dude they didn't say dude but this was essentially a bro let me tell you type of conversation they would come up to him and say we saw I saw your play last night with my wife and she has never made love to me that well in a very long time yeah, you actually quoted it exactly on Twitter. He said, boy, did my wife make love to me after we watched your Dracula. Yeah. <laughs> I, I hate to invoke this, but you know, Twi Moms. I mean, yes. I was were... remembering you quoting Twi Moms. I mean, they were like, it revitalized my sex life. And I'm like, I didn't need to know that. But you know, this, we, we move forward into like Fifty Shades of Grey and you're like, oh shit. You see like the the trajectory of like female desire through all the, whoa, Bella Lugosi said it and I quote this all the time that it's women who love horror mm-hmm. it, and I'll, I'll find it because I can't quote it offhand but you know, it's women who cry out and cling and come back for more you know mm-hmm. which is why it's so amazing to me that horror is viewed as such a dude genre and I'm like, no, seriously <laughs> It's really, I, I know with the, the splatter slasher films you think it is, but it's, no. don't be surprised when women are so into it. Uh, really Langella had this line where he said, women love it because it was penetration without being sexual penetration. So, you know, the vampire sinks his fangs into your neck. Do you know there's not a single fang to be had in the Lugosi version? And I believe Langella said that he never wore fangs in the Oh, he specifically refused. Yeah. 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 And people would say, and when you bared your fangs. And he was like, I didn't have any. That was what really struck me about the Todd Browning version is that, like, I understand, actually, the 30s were kind of wild before, you know, in the pre-code era. They got away with some stuff. So I, I don't know why they did do this in 1931 but they would cut away or fade out from like any hint of actual biting like he would kind of lean in and to the point where the scene felt truncated like it wasn't even like we're just gonna hide it it was the pacing was really weird and you could tell there was probably some biting going on maybe I guess that was implied but it it cut really soon and I I wonder if that's why at the end 
the end is super weird in that Van Hel- the last line of the movie is something like Van Helsing being like, I'll be right there with you in a minute. Like, what? <laughs> and so, you know, John and is it Lucy at that point? John and Lucy proceed up the steps of that giant set, and you hear church bells, and I realize it's almost like they're insinuating they're getting married. So, like, don't worry, she's been, you know... She's been purified. She's been cleansed. She's going to get married. She's rehabilitated. It's all fine. And so I'm wondering if they moved away from any kind of fighting. How long was the version you saw? Was it 85 or 75 minutes? Uh, It was the longer version. Right, because the version that I've seen is the 75 minutes one, which was the cut version that was cut after the Hays Code came into place. And it was a good 10 minutes taken out of the film. So that hmm. I think that what was included in there was certainly some biting. I believe there were some sort of death groans as well, which could be construed as other kinds of groans. Uh. And there was also an <laughs> epilogue of some kind, which they, Maybe. Took out they, wanted to, they didn't want to offend the, uh, the, uh, the religious viewers who you know, I, just wanted a good, clean vampire movie. I thought I had the longer version, but you know, that would kind of make sense if I didn't. Because here's the weird thing. On one hand, they're avoiding biting... On the other hand, they're making it look like maybe it wasn't biting. We don't know what happened because they don't specify it was biting. You're like, well, what did he do? So in a weird way, I mean, the Hayes Code will do this. It, in a weird way, because you're not implying enough, you're implying a lot. Right. So they rehabilitate her at the end and, oh, church bells, we're going to get married. And So here's where the 79 Langella version does something that I feel none of these others do. Because like you said, so that previous version had like, oh, she's purified, right? And so do the subsequent ones. And the book is all about how, you know, purifying the victim. But the Langella version is all about how, no, Lucy is maybe kind of still under his spell or happy that he may be alive. Because it has that ambiguous ending of he may actually Mm -hmm. survive, have survived. And Lucy has this little smile on her face. Oh, yeah. Yep. The whole movie, it seems very much, maybe this is a very 70s kind of thing. It's very much about Lucy's fulfillment and how she doesn't really seem to fit in. You know, I love to be frightened. And Jonathan's such a doofus and just does not get her at all. And how she is the one who, like, goes to dinner at his castle. She seems super into him, you know, has that weird little marching band you know, dance on the, the phonograph that's super strange, but seems really into him. And they have, I mean, apparently it was called the wedding night scene. The, yeah. The, the pink yeah. Lloyd the, lasers and what all. The vampire <laughs> wedding. The vampire yeah. wedding. The, the most random <laughs> 70s sex scene. Like, Langell is like, I didn't like it. I didn't like it at yeah, all. Yeah, Langell's like, I hate <laughs> it. The director's like, that's <laughs> It explains a lot that the scene was called in to direct with a guy who worked on the Bond titles. Because I was just waiting for Shirley Bassey to start singing while all of that was going on. That would have been amazing. Uh, Yeah, so the director specifically calls it a vampire wedding. Yeah. Um, He was very open about the fact that they kind of were making up the rules, the director and the writer, you know, like, well, we kind of basically had to make up which rules do our vampires follow or not. So the director said, so when we have him, you know, carry her to the bed and really like, maybe this is a vampire wedding. Maybe this is what happens. So this is their wedding night. And like he rescues her from the asylum. She's, you know, clings to him, super into him. It's it's the opposite of 
a, a lot of the victimized Lucy type stuff, Mina, Lucy, whichever one we're calling, you know. Right. And it's it's very much like what she wants. And I, you know, they talk about how romantic the, the Coppola one is with the whole reincarnation, love never dies business. But it's like the Langella one is the most romanticized in terms oh, of the woman's actual fulfillment. Mm-hmm. So seeing this when I was 13, <clears throat> before any of the others, that I made an impression. So, uh, and you made that joke that the Pink Floyd lasers, it was actually the band, The Who. They said that they were borrowing the machine. <laughs> the <laughs> Who were touring. <laughs> they had the machine that was small enough to be moved. So they were allowed to borrow it, like, on a Sunday when there was no show. <laughs> so, like, literally. That literally a rock band. Oh, man. And they had the director in to shoot it, and... I, did, I had this comment yesterday where uh, the Langella Dracula is like a proto Jareth from the Labyrinth because he appears at the window with a white smoke. Oh my god. Does that a lot. That explains in the so cape, much. Doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> oh in the cape and the white shirt. Oh my god. He's, really, he's very much a proto Jareth. Like, that just explains so much of my childhood to me. Wow. <laughs> Yeah. Like, it. I, I didn't quite grasp that Jareth was a villain when I was a kid, because I had a, a little sister who was seven years younger than me, and I just thought that Sarah was kind of an idiot. <laughs> I was like, this is a perfectly good opportunity. You have just thrown away. I see no downsides to this situation at all. Yep. I love my sister. I'm just saying. Yep. You know, so... Well, the funny thing is he even has... like So, you know, Jareth has that famous Fear me, love me, do as I say, and I will be your slave. But Langella's Dracula has some line that was actually eerily similar to that. It was almost like, you have no will, I have the will, but we will be... Like, you know, you will do as I say, and we will be... Like, that's kind of the bargain he offers Lucy. Um, we'll be completely under my control, and you will be my queen, my most beloved. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking at the... I actually had the quotes pulled up. Now it is you, my best beloved one. You will be flesh of my flesh, blood of my blood. You will cross land and sea to do my bidding. But at the same time, he also says, you know, you will be my queen. And, you know, she's already my queen. My queen from the grave. I have had in my time many brides, but I shall set Lucy above them all. Mm-hmm. That's the one thing about Dracula as a romantic hero that just never quite works is because... It's, it's hard to be like, oh, this is his one true love. Let's just forget all of the other brides he's got going on and the fact that there's always two women, Mina, Lucy, whichever ones. And he, you know, whichever one dies first, it's really ugly and unpleasant and he doesn't care about her. And then you're supposed to go, oh, but he's the romantic hero who loves the second woman and okay. And But that's the thing. I felt like this movie, at least with that line, I've, I have had others, but she, I will set her above all. At least it's honest about that, that, you know. Yeah. Whereas the Coppola one is like, oh, you know, it all happened because he loved his wife so much, but then they still still keep the three concubines. How does that even make sense within the context of the, that Coppola put that movie into? Of, like, how it started. Yeah. It also doesn't work because he picks up some baby to feed to the brides as well. It's like, there's a romantic hero engaging in infanticide. Yeah, exactly. get in there, old man, who seems to think he's in a very different movie. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just saying that the rehearsal process, Winona Ryder and Gary Oldman were late, 
and they weren't informed that this was going to be a camp classic, so they were playing it as a straight romantic drama. With silly and Keanu accents. Reeves just had no idea what the hell was going on. <laughs> okay, I watched that movie as if Ted from Ted and Bill's Excellent Adventure <laughs> had an English assignment and hopped yes. into the time machine and went into and that movie makes so much more sense if you see it that way. Let me Man, tell you. is he confused? <laughs> what is even going on here? Well, again, having seen that movie dozens of times as a young teenager, as opposed to like a near college age teenager, I I did not necessarily interrogate the perspective of this movie the way I, I would have as a socially aware adult. And so I, y- you don't, you don't quite get the fine distinctions of like, yeah, no, maybe Dracula is not the hero that the movie poster love never dies, you know, claims him to be, maybe this is all kind of terrible and awful, but I, oh, that movie so I don't think I've ever seen it through, or at least not for a long time. I think I've seen it like piecemeal. So yesterday I sat down to watch it through. I didn't realize how incredibly angry I would be about what that movie did to Lucy. Now I'm always angry about yeah. that, though. Nobody <sighs> ever portrays Lucy the way she is in the book. Never. Never. And the problem with that is that you have to have... Uh, granted, she's a little... Uh, flighty, a little naive because she's so rich that she's never had to worry about things. That's mm. what I I feel is really the source of that, you know. But she's a it's, it's not that she's promiscuous. She's very loving and like wants to love everybody, but loves Arthur above all, you know. Okay, and loves Mina, and which again that that was the irony that that was like the one faithful thing of the TV show that Lucy would love Mina in some way. Um, I can't get over that. So that, that <laughs> was the there. there's, time. there's time. There's, there's ah. time. So the the problem is if you don't have Lucy as this very sunny, innocent, loving person, you completely lose the horror of them finding her outside the tomb, and she is just completely corrupted and inhuman. <laughs> Just completely, whereas, you know, Lucy comes in in the, the Coppola movie, and you're like, oh, well, it's Lucy again, okay. You know, Arthur, come to me. I'm like, the other five times you tried that on him, okay. Y- you don't really get that sense of, like, the only difference is that she's in a Klimt gecko wedding dress at that point. <laughs> the only difference is that she has no cleavage. That's really the only difference at that point. And they Always just totally lose that. Always the one naked breast in that movie the one. Lucy. Do you know that in classic art, Revealing, like in the 1700s or so, revealing one breast was usually the sign of like, this is actually a royal mistress or courtesan. That was like a a sign of like... You know what? I think I've read that before. Yeah. I wonder if that was on purpose. I think too. Probably. That sounds like the kind of pretentious shit Coblo would get up to. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) That's true. Can we just... Like back to the horror because... Oh my God! Did Dead Mina in the '79 one terrify the shit out of me? Because Raiden didn't warn me. She didn't I was me. distracted. I was distracted. Sorry, not sorry. That in that you know romantic Dracula movie, there would be actual you know rotting skin, blood dripping from her mouth from the baby she snacked on, red eyes. Papa, Papa, help me! And I'm like, Oh God, burn it with fire. That is. So- and then Lawrence Olivia having to stake her and crying. Oh, it was no. terrible. Yeah. It's pretty terrible. Yeah. <laughs> that scene, though, there's a funny kind of trivia bit about that scene is that 
there's a shot where Olivia's on his hands and knees searching for a cross. He dropped into a puddle and you see her reflecting in the puddle. Um, and they've already established in that movie that, okay, their vampires don't have reflections. And apparently what happened is they've set, spent so much time setting up that shot and the director was so happy and the director of photography was like, okay, we got it. And then like an assistant producer was like, um, she's not supposed to reflect. And the director was, fuck it all. I just spent all this time on that shot. And then he had a brainstorm. Wait, he dropped a cross in it? That's now holy water and holy water does reflect vampires. Done. There you go. I mean, you can also go with the theory that no, the reason vampires don't reflect is because mirrors used to be backed in silver and silver is that metal that vampires don't deal well with so now that you have mirrors or water that don't involve silver then they do reflect in that at which point your brain explodes and trying to establish your rules and you give up this is what i'm talking about you you really can't assume anything like uh, not to defend Twilight, but you look, the sparkling is terrible, but it's not sunlight doesn't kill them. So they're terrible, you know, vampire. I'm like, no, that that wasn't even a thing for like a good yeah. hundred years. Speaking of which, I mentioned that Langella had a line that explained that and that specific line was uh, when so when Jonathan and Van Helsing try to uh, ambush him during a daytime and kill him and the, he's up and Van Helsing's like oh you're more powerful than I assumed out in daylight and he's like it's always daylight somewhere <laughs> <laughs> he literally says that it's always daylight somewhere on the earth I just need to be in darkness <laughs> it's always five o'clock somewhere exactly. <laughs> it's always blood o'clock somewhere <laughs> it's always five o'clock somewhere says dirtbag Draculus he sinks his teeth into Lucy's neck <laughs> there you go <laughs> God. <sighs> I don't even know. What did the Coppola do? Did we ever see him in sunlight? I don't even know yeah. if he addressed yeah, he he does does Oh, yeah. He's... He bursts out of a crate, and you actually. Is it actually an Anthony Hopkins voiceover? It's, you know, but he is very weak, you know. They actually specifically say that. And I guess they had to because people would have assumed sunlight should kill him. So they had to be like, no, seriously, guys. God, that fucking yeah. movie. <laughs> we've, we've totally skipped over the Christopher Lee, which, oh. you know, plot-wise is kind of all over the place. And he, I, I was reading this on Wikipedia trying to catch up on, you know, how many did he do exactly. Apparently they basically blackmailed him into doing like way more than he wanted to emotionally blackmailing him because um i mean he has killed a man he will kill you too. <laughs> exactly you he don't blackmail long. christopher lee that's like, he knows the sound a man makes when you stab him like, <laughs> okay don't, don't fuck with christopher lee but the, the producer should be like no we already sold this to distributors based on you being in it think of all the people who will lose their jobs oh he was like Fuck everybody, really. <laughs> so, like, this, I think the second movie he's in, there's no dialogue. He just hisses through the whole thing. They keep writing little bits in for him, so he'll be like, oh, God, okay, fine. <laughs> so it's really only the first one that he's, you know, kind of there for. But uh, I, I actually find him to be the closest to the book, just in that sense of, you know, he can be very, you know, this haughty, aristocratic bearing, but then it just completely goes away and he has this feral you know I, I hate to bring it back to Hannibal but it reminds me a lot of the um, in retrospect of the kitchen fight you know the cutting board and the knife and it's just the yeah. veneer is just gone just completely gone 
inhuman animal. That that is what you get out of the Christopher Lee version, which I I don't know that I've really seen anybody else do because I mean even Gary Oldman has the giant monster makeup. He's were ape. Yeah, you know that weird were bat creature thing. You know had to spend half the day in makeup. You know, but snarls a little bit in human form, but doesn't actually do the whole. I don't even need makeup. I just have to. Well, I think Chris really did have those huge red contacts. Now that I think about it, so that you know, let's be fair. But just basically did it with his face. Just, just his face. Just. It's a good like eighty percent pure presence with Christopher Lee, and there are very few actors, even really great actors, who can could really pull that off in that way. Well, he does have the sort of like. The, the problem with doing so many of those Dracula movies, because Hammer Horror just pumped out those movies. Basically, it was just him and Peter Cushing and progressively more and more blood and progressively more and more breasts. And that's basically the formula for a perfect Hammer Horror movie in the 70s. There's a hilarious first, uh, Dracula movie called Dracula AD 1972, which is basically, what if Dracula woke up in the 70s? Isn't that the TV show (laughs) that Tim Burton tried to make into a movie? Dark Shadows. Oh, that is terrible. Don't get me started on Dark Shadows. (laughs) But wasn't that the TV show, The Vampire Wakes Up in the 70s? But also travels back in time, as I remember. Oh, sure. There was a whole bunch of, you know, back and forth. And I think it was a vampire from, what, the 1700s? Which is kind of picking up on the Barney the Vampire idea of, like, he was from the 1700s. And, the great. I mean, again, from what... I, I read about half of the entire saga and only recapped, like, three or four recaps worth and need to go back to that. But I've read a lot more than I wrote about. And they kept shifting, was it the grandfather, the great-grandfather, who had which name... Bannerworth, Marmaduke, I mean, all of these totally random, bizarro names. Runagate. I think Bannerworth was the last name. Runagate and Marmaduke. Whatever. <laughs> random. But Giant it, it, dog? <laughs> it ended up going back to the 1700s, you know, kind of the gentleman, you know, take as an evolution from Lord Ruthven, you know. Um, so uh, oddly, the whole Dark Shadows thing, that original TV version, it reminds me more of, like, the Varney thing than Dracula. Particularly in, like, the family saga nature of it. Because the whole thing is, like, Varney's trying to get back his ancestral home or whatever, and I'll pay you anything to buy your house. And they're like, no, weirdo, get out. <laughs> Stop jumping over our wall. What the hell? <laughs> but he keeps on falling. And in that one, that's the thing. In the 1800s, you see moonlight as a thing. Moonlight as a thing that sustains vampires and brings them back to life. Whereas when you get to the 20th century, nobody gives a shit about moonlight anymore. It's so interesting how we switched from, like, one to the other. I think, I would say that probably modern, um, well, science kind of got in the way in that. Because once you realize that moonlight is just sunlight reflected, I don't... That you realize that if you put that in your vampire lore, it's just going to be too many people going, well, if sunlight kills them, why does reflected sunlight not kill them? You know what I mean? It's not worth the, the headache of dealing I, with I, the fans. I really, well, that, I really kind of think that Stoker not caring about that, either not finding out about it or just not caring. I think that really, if he didn't write about it, people didn't pay attention to it mm-hmm. for a long time. 
but that's so interesting to me because if you if because I had to look into you know if you were living in the 1800s, what assumptions would you make about vampires? Because you know how you know me me writing my vampire thing that I'll someday finish. When you you always have that discussion, you know our vampires are different as the trope goes, and you mm-hmm. always have to have the discussion in any story where people go, well, we're not like those Anne Rice vampires, we're not like those Twilight vampires, or we're not you know even the Anne Rice vampires go, well we're not like Dracula, you know. So you always have to do that, and they are usually discussing 20th century or 21st century assumptions. What assumptions would you make in the if you lived in the 1800s? You wouldn't make very many of those. You'd be you'd go well. Moonlight brings them back. Well, we know that, and yeah. it's a completely different set of mythological assumptions. So I just got something. Literally, something from the Dracula book has just made sense to me as you were talking. I don't even know why it clicked. the The fact that the book starts on St. George's Day, well, like three days before St. George's Day, and uh, the old peasant woman gives. Um, Jonathan the cross, right? And she says it's St. George's Day. St. George and the dragon, that's why. Oh my god, I did not realize that before. Yeah. Yeah, and it, it is the night that, you know, all evil holds sway. But I mean, you could also say that of... I, I actually don't know that Halloween is like... All Hallows Eve when it all was? All Hallows Eve. Well, no, but like, was that a thing in um, that kind of... in that area? I, I don't know. Because I mean, Halloween is really like a, a celtic kind of tradition that mm-hmm. you know got well, that, brought that over into Sauron and then beltane which the idea was that for these two points in the year the beginning of winter and the beginning of summer the yeah. um sort of the veil between our world and the other world would be lessened and sort of, and you would be able to cross over and that's one of the reasons that it was celebrated yeah and they are basically six months apart beginning of may end of october so yeah that that is true but yeah i mean the dragon and the order of the dragon and the dracula and yeah i mean it's whatever mythology he did run off with from emily gerard he he did a really good job with it mm-hmm. but uh, like the wolves were there and Here's a, th- a a weird thing that there's weird things that Coppola decided he would keep from the book versus not like he seems to he's the only movie of the ones I've seen that keeps the hairy palms from the from old Dracula for whatever reason because yeah. I was skimming through the book trying to like jog my memory on some of the things and when Jonathan first meets the count he does say well for some reason his palms had uh, hair on them and then in the movie in the Coppola movie with that weird Minnie Mouse hairstyle that I still don't get <laughs> I don't get it I just I, oh. I'm not sure what it was supposed to represent as opposed to a lot of the Klimt the Gustav Klimt fabrics and and literally I, I think Aiko Ishioka was trying to go for a gecko look. I, I'm not kidding. I think she really was with the, the wedding dress. Because lizard, right? He's described as a lizard in the book, even. Yeah, and a lot of Lucy's costumes. The snake are dress. Snake and lizard inspired. It took me years to figure out why she called that the snake dress because I couldn't see the pattern on the fabric. Mm. And so years and years later, I saw a high quality picture of it. And I was like, there's snakes on it. Jesus. So. But why, like, that red was supposed to be a nightgown, but it was like a modern summer dress? I don't even know. <sighs> Let's just talk that, about um, I do know that Francis Ford Coppola did basically just tell the costume designers and the set designers to be as weird as they wanted to be. 
Because when when uh, Coppola was making this movie, his career was in the tank. He had made a series of extremely expensive movies that had all flopped. And everyone had assumed that this movie was going to flop as well. So I think he just decided, you know what, I'm going to make the movie I want to make. And it's just going to be batshit. Literal Batman <laughs> shit. And it made a ton of money. I mean, it it even this so is much money. Movie. It made $70 million the first weekend. I know it sounds weird that I know that, but I remember the weekend it came out, I remember seeing that. Being like, wow. Back then, that was a lot of money for one weekend. It may still mm-hmm. be. <sighs> well, Let's... Maleficent made $70 million its opening weekend, and people are pretty happy with that. So Yeah, this was 20 years ago. Yeah. That was mm-hmm. a nutty amount of money, you know, 20-something years ago. And what I mean, it was rated R. I mean, that's amazing to me. I mean, nowadays they would have tried to push it down to PG thirteen. Just maybe just fewer blood. breasts. <laughs> I was about to maybe less blood, but they probably could have gotten away with the blood. It, it's it, yeah, it's the yeah. breasts that would have done it. Okay, so yeah, this, even so, they're breasts. They're not dick. So this movie and what it does to Lucy, it just pisses me off so much. So much. So, I, I was raging about it on Twitter too because like you, I really like that this book. You know, it's like you said, Lucy's very loving. Like she's honestly this bright, sweet girl. And Mina, you know, she's very brave and capable. And Coppola looked at them and was like, okay, well, this one's the whore, and consequently, this one's gonna be the corrupted Madonna. And I just, oh my god, like, and we know Lucy's a whore because she has red hair and she looks at the Kama Sutra, whatever that book was they were looking at, and she has sex dreams. And she deserves whatever's coming to her. Oh my god, do I hate it. Hate. I think that that movie has a lot to answer for, also because, I mean, did anybody do Mina as the reincarnation of Dracula's wife before that? I don't necessarily recall that being a story thing before that now it's totally a thing and I mean I think they may have really brought Lucy as the promiscuous one kind of into I don't I don't know that people really did that before that I mean there's Lucy in um, the Franklin Jello one but I mean she's viewed as the heroine and it's more of her self fulfillment the girl who gets killed off is the very meek and mousy one Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's almost like they kill off the one that's too boring. Yeah, and which is a whereas, whole other host of issues, but right. And whereas in the Coppola one, they gotta kill off the one that's the most interesting. You, know. you wanted us to remind you to talk about the unclean, unclean scene. Oh, I have this entire thing about, um, and it's it's more Jonathan centric. Um, Having reread the book several times, um, and and the Leslie Klinger annotated version is so great. I will I will put in a recommendation for that. It is really really great. What I noticed about that scene is that Jonathan does not have what I would have assumed the typical Victorian reaction would have been. Is this in the book or in the movie? In, in the in the book in the book because they don't really if they ever even do that scene they don't really. They have her say the words during the scene after Dracula, you know, has her drink his blood and then turns into the rats. As the rats are running past her feet, she looks yeah. down and whispers, unclean, unclean. Unclean, you know, yeah. They they don't really linger on that scene if they if they really do it at all. And um, that that's the thing about the Coppola Dracula. They, they do a lot of things that most movies leave out because they're working with the uh, Hamilton Dean play. I, I will give them, they do things that, you know, they usually leave out. 
but Jonathan is extremely supportive of Mina. He doesn't treat her as like, no, I must not touch you until you are purified. Now she keeps saying, I don't want to be touched kind of as a, an abuse victim at that point. But I realize that he is also approaching this as an abuse victim, a metaphorical rape or molestation victim, because when he gets out of that castle, you know, no matter who, which one of them did what to him, he doesn't want to talk to her about it. He completely shuts down. He, his coping mechanism is just, I don't want to deal with this. And he eventually wishes he had told somebody what had happened, which is a, either choice you make, it's a legitimate choice as a survivor. Do you or do you not want to officially tell anybody, you know, and which is a a very tricky issue itself. But that issue is present that he then regrets. If only I had told somebody, no, no, it wasn't your fault. You, you were coping with this. So he wants to keep it from her because he himself you know, feels unclean, has all of these nightmares, is, quote-unquote, a broken man. So when this happens to her, he feels hideously guilty, and it's the last thing in the world he wanted to happen to somebody he loved, that this predator has gotten her as well. But at the same time, there are no longer any secrets between them. She understands exactly what he's been through, and it's like, in a, in a way, it's a huge relief to him because now he has another survivor to understand him. And I find that so interesting because I, I don't think that's necessarily something Stoker would have consciously thought of at all. But it was so interesting to me because a, a typical Victorian kind of idea would be more like, she's unclean, we have to cure her or I don't want to see her, or I have to get revenge on her, you know, for her. And, you you know, Jonathan does get kind of obsessed with wetting that knife of his. But it, it's so emotional and sentimental in the, in the best way possible. They have such a deep emotional connection, and it's it brings them closer together instead of pushing them apart. Which is one of the reasons the Dracula show made me so angry. Because Jonathan is such a just whiny douche who keeps waffling back and forth on does he want to get married, does he not. And I'm like, the heart of the Dracula novel is this deep connection and support between these two people. And I don't know that any movie has ever really gotten that. Because at best, Jonathan is a doofus, usually. At best. Accurate. Accurate. <laughs> I will say that is something that comes through very strongly in the Coppola version, although I think that is 80% casting. Yeah. Oh, Keanu. <laughs> yeah. I, with all my love for Keanu Reeves, I just can't defend that particular... <sighs> Look, that I, accent. I understand. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I understand. At least Van feeling calm. The logistics behind casting him, given that it was 1992 and he was going to bring all the girls to the yard. Well, Coppola basically admitted that's why he cast him. Yeah. So he needed a matinee idol for Jonathan and women flocked to Keanu at the time. Yeah. Although, why? He's barely in the movie. But, but was there literally nobody else? Really? Nobody in 1992? Nobody. Yeah. 
I'm trying he, to think who could have played him that would have worked well. I love I love Keanu Reeves because when he is cast correctly, he is great. I even think he's great in the day the earth stood still. I think his persona works really well in that role. I think he works great in the Matrix because whoa is kind of the reaction you have to have to that. The first one. The first one. The other two movies didn't happen. We don't speak of the other two. I don't know what you're talking about. When he's cast, or like speed. Whoa, that is kind yeah. of the, you know, you need that for that. When he is miscast, it is a walk in the clouds. It is. I don't even know about that. when he is miscast. It is bad. It is so bad. And he just does not work in that movie. And I think Winona's a little borderline in places like, ah, oh, that accent. But, and I know she brought it. She brought the story to Coppola herself. And so she was kind of part and parcel of it. And I know he would sit there and kind of enthuse over, you know, she looks right for it. You know, this Snow White, you know, looking. Um, I, I, he specifically compared her to Snow White. And then you have that green dress she's in on the train with the big, well, and that's what she wears for the rest of the movie. With that big triangular collar, that's mm-hmm. a very fairy tale looking dress, which is, uh, let's go traveling in that. I think we should do that. Well, she very specifically, uh, her dresses when they reach, at, at the very end, you know, when she's with Van Helsing, like on the castle looking, they're very medieval looking. So it's yeah. like they're trying to bring her back to Dracula's wife, Elizabeth. Yep. Mm. Yeah. And it's, you know, I, I think if they, she's kind of half, half well cast, half miscast, maybe. It's, it's kind of borderline, but poor Keanu, I really like him, but it's just not working for him. It's mm-hmm. really not. And yet, weirdly, the rest of the casting in that movie is pretty damn great. I will just, I've said it before and I'll say it again, the greatest piece of casting in any movie ever is Tom Waits' as Renfield. <laughs> I can't it argue. It is so perfect. <laughs> I, mean, I still feel like he wandered back in time off like a Harry Potter set. You knew he was like a prisoner of Azkaban. Yep. Gary <laughs> Oldman taking notes in the corner. Yeah. Someday. <laughs> I will need this. She's at Hogwarts. <laughs> Look, I'm just saying, Mason and Hannibal know what movie they're in. Okay. Yes. Everyone else is enjoyably campy. They know what level they're pitching this at. Yeah. And then you've got the two youngins who are kind of struggling. They're doing their best. Renfield is this weird figure that movies don't seem quite to know what to do with him, so they keep on trying to fit him into the story. Uh, the the seventy nine had Renfield just be kind of a, the English servant he hires, and that but he still eats the bugs in that weird nod. This movie sometimes has real horror for being a romantic Dracula, and like the bugs yeah. are one of them. <laughs> yeah, I, I was really struck by the Lugosi version. Um, and they're Renfield, who just keeps wandering around. He just keeps showing up. And it's like, no, no, Master, no, I didn't tell them, except for how I totally did. And he does this, like, four <laughs> times. And he has a, you know, he goes out in a, a great, he has a great death scene. But, and it was interesting because I reblogged something on Tumblr. The, um, kind of the ideal man of the, the 20s and... 30s and I cannot think what the guy's name was. Let me see if I can find it. Um, both Jonathan, John, and Renfield very much had that look. That very, you know, clean shaven, chiseled, hair combed back, you know, well suited 
kind of look. And I thought that was so interesting having just Landecker. I thought that was really interesting having just seen that. But also, I just got to say, I love Lucy's dresses in that movie. (laughs) These flowy, fluffy chiffon numbers. But then after she's been bitten, she has an asymmetrical neckline. Oh, no, everything (laughs) is so wrong now. So wrong. Uh, has anyone other than me seen the Dracula 2000 movie? Oh, I think that movie is one of the best pieces of trash ever made. I will watch <laughs> it whenever it's on television, and I will love every single moment, even when I am cringing like crazy. Is that the one with vitamin C? With hmm? the rapper slash actress? No. Um, it's the one where Jared Butler plays Dracula. She's in that. Okay. It's the, um... Oh, Colleen Fitzpatrick. I'm looking at the list of actors. Like, yeah, she's listed... She's accredited by her actual name. That's why. But yes, that is the one. Yes. So... The Westerman? I mean, the evolution of Lucy's last name is hilarious. So that... In this movie, at the time when I saw it on TV, I guess, like... I wasn't yet steeped enough in North American culture to recognize a lot a lot of these names. I just saw Jerry Ryan. Oh, hey, Seven of Nines in this. Um, but it has Jared Butler's Dracula, Christopher Plummer as Van Helsing descendant, Johnny Lee Miller, Jennifer Esposito, Omar Epps, um, Nathan Fillion's in this file. I forgot about that one. So a whole bunch of people you will recognize. But it has the probably one of the most wackadoo takes on the and thank you, Cleolinda, for teaching me that word because <laughs> I'm not using it extensively. All the time. Yeah, all the time. Uh, takes on the legend. It completely do, does away with all the Eastern European vampire mythos and decides Dracula is Judas Iscariot. Which I kind of, you know... But it made sense in a weird way. It's it's not inherently a bad idea. It's just a bad movie because every part of it has been executed so badly. It's like, what are the kids into these days? They go to record stores like Virgin, don't they? Let's have a long shot in there where there's like new metal music playing. And there's at least a couple shots of the flowing shirt as well. And then there's more new metal music. And it's hard to believe that Wes Craven had anything to do with this, even if he is just producing it. Like, there's actually a moment in the film where Christopher Plummer, you can see the look in his eyes where the check has cleared. And I really feel like that was what was going on with Wes Craven. I like, I love Christopher Plummer, as we all do. Well, no, Wes Craven, my understanding, produced it because the writer and director was a longtime editor of his. So I think it was like a favor to a friend. If you got a favor, just pay off the debts on his card or something. Don't make a movie for him. Poor man. But it's, it's, it's enjoyably trashy to watch. Because uh, Jared Butler has amazing curly hair as well. <laughs> For those who are curious, <laughs> here's how the logic on Dracula equals Judas works. And the logic is that he's afraid of crosses and silver, you know, because obviously Jesus died on the cross and he was paid 30 pieces of silver. So now silver burns him to remind him of his treachery. Which is not bad logic, really, as that goes. And I mean, suicide. There's there's a whole yeah, you know, subsection of myths that suicide creates vampires. I mean, I, I actually, I, I I get where they were going with that. I'm like, okay, I respect this. But just, oh, the rest of the movie. Oh, man. That, it, does feature my favorite, it does feature my favorite line in any, any movie ever, where um, Johnny Lee Miller is attacking one of the vampires, who I think is Omar Epps, and he just starts yelling very excitedly, never ever fuck with an antiques dealer. 
<laughs> and I have never fucked with an antiques dealer since. So thank you, Johnny. Oh, Johnny Lee Willer. I the more you, you know. know. <laughs> <laughs> <sighs> Note taken. That's just... Oh, man. And then the, I remember this movie primarily for the sex scene on the ceiling. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Because I mean, it's, how, it's how can you not remember that? I mean, that's that's unique, and uh... <laughs> wow. There Which I believe was with vitamin lines. C. Now that I think about it, I think it is. Well, there were some. Yeah. There are a couple of really good lines in that movie, just where the bit where he gets at the cross and says, "Sorry, I'm an atheist," and he goes, "Oh, God loves you anyway." Like clearly, there were, the screenwriter had a bit of effort going on in there beyond the initial premise. Like, don't shell out money to pay to see this movie, but if it's on, just watch it. Yeah. Oh, Jared Bartlett's curly hair is amazing. There's a great bit if you watch the um, the making of Switch. Yes, I did. Sorry. There's a bit where he like leap kind of leaps out of the water, and they shoot that and then cut, and all you hear him shouting is "Oh, for fuck's sake!" in his extremely broad Glaswegian accent. <laughs> And I was like, why didn't you just keep the Glaswegian accent throughout this movie? It would have been amazing. <laughs> Honestly, sometimes the making of stuff is the only thing that redeems a movie, so you have no judgment <laughs> for me here. Yeah. Believe me. Sometimes the commentary is like the best thing about a movie. It's true. I have I did not realize until I actually looked at my nineteen seventy nine DVD that there is a director commentary and why I have not listened to this yet, I do not know. <laughs> That is something I must correct immediately. <laughs> I want to hear him talk about the laser light show sex. He loves it. He genuinely <laughs> loves he it. Genuinely thinks it's the best thing ever. Someone had to love it for it to end up in. <laughs> I really don't someone feel like to. it was the 1970s was the only excuse going there. Clearly, someone was enjoying themselves there. <laughs> you know, when you put it next to, I. The Hayes Code cutting out whatever happened in the Todd Browning, and then you have the weird. It's just sex scene in the. Because the rest of the movie, Dracula is so much, you know, I am Heathcliff on the Moors. Yeah, and it kind of has an Edwardian feel to it. Very much so. It's it did seem to move the the plot up to like the 1910s. Judging the, by fashion. The costumes, yeah, and the the motor car. And the car. <laughs> the blessed motor car that goes two miles an hour. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> they they did kind of move that up a bit. And and the actor who plays uh, Lucy's father, Seward, um, does like he he plays it so weirdly in that like, oh Jonathan's in Lucy's bedroom. Oh hi Jonathan, he's in your daughter's bedroom. It's the, so the Donald. The Donald Pleasance character. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's and, so weird. And the way like he's like, oh, I'm gonna give Mina some laudanum, and then like at the end of the movie, are you gonna give Lucy laudanum? My my own daughter, of course not. That's hysterical. You've had a space. <laughs> <laughs> it's this hilariously comic character that's in there for some reason. That whole movie is. It, Weirdly uneven in places. Like I can't believe the big romantic dance music they have. It's like this weird marching band. Like I, I don't, I don't get that choice, <laughs> that life choice there. But then the parts that are great are so great. Like when she goes to dinner at the castle, you know, and he 
what is it? Says something in Romanian. Now, White Lucy would know Romanian. I don't know. She, well, I know a little. Even though Mina was <laughs> translating it earlier in the scene, like the 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 logbooks from the Demeter, like they just maybe. randomly gave these girls. Well, maybe that's why me, Lucy knows a little bit of it. Maybe yeah. she picked it up from her. I'll, I'll go, okay, okay, I'll give it to him. But you know, she says, "Well, I don't understand what you said." You know, and I told you to smile, and she was, and so it worked. <laughs> yeah, and I mean. Their chemistry is just really good. You know, there's something I noticed in that these movies don't seem to spend much time on what happened in the Demeter. But to me, in the actual book, that is terrifying. Yeah, that's the most effective horror in the book to me because you just get these logs where like we don't know what's happening people are dying you know we can't find our way in the night and there was another attack and I'm just gonna you know and then myself to the wheel with a rosary and hope that works well two two things about that one is that there's a movie that's been in development for a long time called I think the voyage of the demeanor that they've been threatening to make for the last few years uh, which could be really interesting Number two is that Leslie Klinger has a super interesting theory about what's really going on there because, as he points out, why why would Dracula screw over his own transportation? Why would he do that? He wouldn't do that. What if the person who's really killing everybody is the excitable Hungarian who knows there's a vampire on board and is convinced that everybody else is infected? And that's why you see Dracula pacing back and forth on the ship being like, oh, shit, oh, shit, what's happening? Oh, my God. So, I mean, the captain is aware that there's something bad going on. And, like, everyone knows that there's something weird and what they're thinking of is Dracula. But the person actually killing people and throwing them overboard is the Hungarian mate, which makes so much more sense to me. And would also be an excellent horror movie. Wouldn't it? Because you'd be expecting it to be Dracula and then you'd be like, oh, God. It's that guy. Yeah. No, it's just... And none of the movies seem to take advantage of that very effective horror already written for them. And none of the movies take advantage of Whitby at all. I mean, Valangelo one's set at quote-unquote Whitby, but nobody ever does Mina trying to go through the cemetery Hmm. to find Lucy. And I mean, they have a little bit of that in the garden in the Coppola version. But it's, it's not really... Oh, uh, that scene, yeah. Uh. <laughs> but, I mean, Whitby is such a great location with the actual stairs curving around the side mm-hmm. of the hill. I mean, that's a real a real place, accurately described. Mm-hmm. And they just never make use of that location at all that I'm, I'm aware of, that specific. And that was what always kind of fascinated me because that was the scene I had to read in the reading test. And that some of the best art in the Greg Hildebrandt book is of that scene mm-hmm. and no one ever does anything with it I'm, maybe someone has and i'm not aware of it the only one i can think of that actually was filmed in whitby and used a location was the bbc made a version in 2006 i believe for tv which featured uh rafe spall mark warren and that guy from downton abbey that everyone really hates now Dan stevens that's it <laughs> and it was, such, and it was I remember being so excited to watch this on TV because I, I was 16 when it came out. It was a big, it was one of the big things about you know Christmas TV on the BBC was that they were doing this Dracula, and I hadn't read the book by this point in time, so I had to listen to my mother go through the whole thing saying that doesn't happen in the book, which is usually my job <laughs> in the family. But this one's odd because um, so Dan Stevens plays Arthur Hollywood, who's engaged to Lucy at the beginning, but he has syphilis, which he was born with. Uh, I'm not entirely sure you can be born with syphilis, but 
what the case he he hasn't told Lucy that he has syphilis because he wants to find uh, cure himself before they get married and they do the do. So he's been told that there's a man who will clear his polluted blood and that man is of course Dracula and he has to bring him to England in order to get this cure. And then of course Dracula basically comes here and there is actually a scene where he says something like I like your women. And they're like, "Oh, okay, that's what he's here for then." <laughs> and he Coming goes after Lucy. Girl. Yeah, basically. So he goes after Lucy. I believe he he turns Lucy and then she is killed or no, he turns Lucy in and I think they try to give her a blood transfusion and she ends up dying anyway. And then he goes after Mina, who is played by Stephanie Leonidas, who was either in the Harry Potter movies or her sister was in the Harry Potter movies. She's an actress. But she she's about 30 now, but she looks about 14 in the role and it's really unnerving. And uh, Mark Warren plays Dracula, who, whose main uh, directorial choice seems to have been just be quite quiet, you know? You don't really need to do much, just keep your voice low. And the main issue with this adaptation is it was kind of boring. Oh, Which is a mirror like... mask. Yes, she's yeah. a mirror mask. I knew she was in something. But the because the problem it was supposed to be I was so excited to say as well, because David Suchet was playing Van Helsing. It was like Poirot was playing Van Helsing. That is awesome. And it was just rather dull and it, it didn't really have any life to it at all. I feel like someone had just being told write something that's Dracula but that isn't at the same time and see what we can do with it and I think the review said you know to use every pun in the book that it was rather anemic <laughs> they were of asking course. for that really I mean, really I mean, <laughs> but, yeah. they walked they, into that one but it had real potential because I quite like this idea of Arthur Holmwood because in the book he is kind of the expendable one out of the three of uh, Lucy's suitors you get the feeling he would be the one to sort of run away in the time of crisis first before um, Seward and Quincy. So I quite like the idea of him being like this crawling little bastard. And he is. And I don't know if that's down to the casting as well. Because I understand everyone hates him now. <laughs> I don't watch Downton Abbey, okay? So I don't understand why everyone doesn't like him. Uh, um, because he basically <laughs> fucked over his character by saying, I quit. I want to be in movies. and so I want to be in movies. And look how well that's worked out for him. <laughs> He not only fucked over his character, he fucked over other... I have feelings. <laughs> I don't even watch it, and I found out what he did, and I was like, you're terrible. So <laughs> I'm sure he's going to enjoy being a knight of the museum thief. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. Um, so, yeah, if you see it, I mean, I think it's on YouTube. Because I did re-watch it months ago when I knew we were going to do this episode. Not, not at the uh, Museum 3? Went straight to you. No. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's a new low, right? <laughs> but it's, it's, I mean, if you like if you like watching Poirot be Van Helsing, there is some uh, there is some fun in that. I feel like Van Helsing is the character that actors get to have the most fun with because Anthony Hopkins is having the time of his life with that role in the Goblet. But uh, Cleo, remember when you were doing? I think you were doing recaps and you pointed out that Van Helsing talks like a lol cat. In the uh, mirror, uh, he <laughs> makes no reflect. <laughs> <laughs> in the book, yes, in the book, and Leslie Klinger has just the best annotation to the side, and Van Helsing says something like, "Oh, it it would jealous him," and Leslie Klinger's like, "Indeed, you know, <laughs> definitely, it would definitely jealous him." But it's his his faulty grasp of English, and he seems to break into German, even though he's Dutch, because sure, and okay. But yeah, it, it would definitely, in jealous him in the mirror, he make no reflect. 
you know, he says some great things to Mina when he gets, like, excitable about some discovery she's made. And... But nobody seems to do that in the movies. Except, I don't know, Lawrence Olivier is, like, kind of, he's Lawrence Olivier. And that movie is a lot more somber and dark, so that's great. But Anthony Hopkins is, like, yeah, we're going to need to cut off her heart. Like, he's so casually psychopathic. <laughs> My favorite scene in that film is the bit where he says, what do you want to do, Lucy? Nothing, I just want to cut off her head and take out her heart. What's the big deal, man? <laughs> and the bit as well where um, Arthur he says, I, I'll t- you can have you know, every drop of blood if she needs it. He goes, really? Well, thank you. Well, I don't need that yet. But... <laughs> Not yet. I love poor Richard E. Grant's reaction to, you know, cut off her head and take off her heart. And he's just like, get out. He's just He just <laughs> walks out like without a word. And he's like, Jack, you know, oh, no, I did it again. <laughs> <laughs> he is he is off the rails. As I I do remember, uh, Francis Ford Coppola saying that he he wanted Van Helsing to be like just as messed up as anybody else in that movie. And there's Seward who's got like his drug issues, which I mean he does in the book. I'll, I'll give you know give him credit for that. Not he's not like an addict, but he does say, well, I need to take less. Um, I can't remember. It's not morphine. I can't remember Lord, what he starts. I want to say it was an injection of something. He he starts, you know, taking stuff to help him sleep after Lucy, you know, uh, turns down his proposal. So they kind of took that to the logical conclusion of, well, now he has a drug problem, you know. And they they kind of turned everything up to 11, which is maybe kind of the most concise description of that movie you can come up with. <laughs> this very operatic, you know... I feel like Brian Fuller must have seen that movie and really enjoyed it when he was younger. <laughs> I, I, I see some similarities. No, for real. Like, um, the Wendigo bondage dream scene that they took from Hannibal Rising. The big waves of blood at the end reminded me of nothing so much as that scene in Lucy's room where there's just, for no reason, tidal wave of blood from yeah. both sides. That scene is you know? really full on. Yeah. <laughs> I kind of forgot how full on it was. That it, it's a weirdly intense, operatic, florid kind of movie. And he, I mean, I think all the effects were done in camera. They there's, were. No, yeah, they were. there's no CGI. I mean, it's a really amazing, like, visual accomplishment. It's gorgeous. And I think that's why I loved it so much as a teenager, was just the the atmosphere and the visuals and the music is amazing. The music is so great. And I mean, as a side note into social issues, I think this is why it's so important to look at the things we're saying in our media, because I'm 13. I didn't know what I was. I I didn't realize some of this stuff was kind of, it's kind of gross. The consent issues are like weird. And Mm -hmm. the lines are really I, I was don't talking say about it. This. Don't say it. I'm not. I, I, I realized I needed to back off that because I hate that thing so much. <laughs> no, don't say it. Don't say it. Um, they, um... Indistinct. <laughs> I, I... I waited Sadie Frost's sexy face over the line where she says, oh, it was terrible. I couldn't stop myself. His red eyes. His red eyes. And... I was waiting the wrong things and didn't quite grasp the horror of it. Whereas, you know, I respect the book because Dracula's really arrogant and awful and dismissive and condescending to everybody. 
he is really terrible to Mina. And, you know, you are my bountiful wine press and there's nothing they can do about it. And I will kill everyone you love. And, you know, he's the only reason we, we don't know all that much about what's going on with him and Lucy, because we only see it from their perspective. We don't really talk to him about that Mm -hmm. at all the way we do with um, Mina. But he is like consistently kind of terrible. And we grasp that this is a story about a terrible person who is bad and he should feel bad. You know, it's, it's that kind of thing. And there's that really interesting moment with, you know, the pillar of mist and the red eyes that, you know, Mina's talking about and how it's not a a rape or ravishment fantasy at all. It's her saying, I couldn't move. I didn't want to move. And that was what was so horrible about it. It's not, I wanted it. It was, I watched myself not protect myself, not run, not get up, not get away a complete passivity. And I think Jonathan talks about the same thing with the three brides. Mm-hmm. He says, I, except he does kind of talk about it in terms of, I wanted it to happen and then it happened and I didn't like it at all. And that was, that was terrible. Um, but he talks about how the want itself is not like natural and kind of disgusts him, right? Like this is obviously not yeah, a desire but- that comes kind of from within. Well, we know they're vampires, right? So it's very easy for us to extrapolate. Like they have this kind of power over people. And and there's like he even says there's a metallic, you know, yeah, it's smell blood un- under their their honeyed breath. And so like even he can tell beneath, you know, metaphorically, like beneath this beautiful surface, there's something that makes him uncomfortable, even when he thinks it's a nice dream and he's he's down with it then he's like something's wrong here it's not good so i mean there there are consent issues but they're much more on explicitly on the side of this is horrifying Mm -hmm. where you watch you can watch the coppola movie and get a little confused as to who's enjoying what and they kind of throw the horror of it was terrible and i didn't want it offhandedly almost and if you don't really know what you're looking like the person who does that to her is the same one who's trying to convince Mina that she's his reincarnated wife and they're totally in love like when you weight that sentence more heavily suddenly the entire movie becomes this horrible like gaslighting stalker you know it takes on a completely different cast as opposed to love never dies and everything's totally okay because she's the promiscuous one that's what was so weird about it because they tried to do this, you know, Elizabeth was his true love and he's waiting for her to be, re- he turned out, like he turned on the church because of her, they wouldn't bury her in like consecrated ground after she committed suicide and like this is all out of his love. But then, yes, he has these concubines and yeah, he's going to do that to Lucy. How is that a romantic hero again? What were you going for here? It's, it's when you start to really, uh, not not to be all academic about it. When you start to interrogate what's really going on, mm-hmm. it's like, wait, 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 wait. Yeah. And I, I think it's so buried. There's a lot of horror movies that make you uncomfortable. Well, I mean, it's like the original book. You don't understand why it's making you uncomfortable, but it does. I don't think this movie makes you uncomfortable enough, given what's going on. It skews more towards the erotic yeah. Explicitly. Do you know why they made that decision? Was it just going to be considered more profitable at the box office for them to have this romantic element in the R-rated movie? Or do we know? Is anyone familiar I, why they made that decision? I have the novelization, because, you know, I 
didn't realize it wasn't the book until I, I got it, you know, 13 years old. Oh, cool. Wait, this isn't it. I, I think they really bought into how erotic it was supposed to be. I, I think that was pretty face value sincere on their part. And you know, the funny thing is I actually, um, it, I felt it was so abrupt that there are scenes in there, like, for example, the dinner Mina has with Dracula while um, Jonathan is still a captive. I didn't, I wasn't actually entirely sure until later in the movie that the dinner actually happened. I thought that maybe some of it was like Dracula's fantasies because the whole, oh no, Mina suddenly in love with him and calls him her prince was so abrupt to me that I didn't real. and maybe because I was coming off as a book reader. So I knew that no, Mina and Jonathan are like a actually sincere relationship. So I wasn't sure that I was actually supposed that, that this was a Mina Dracula love story. I think that really happened in the sense that he was, like, putting some kind of glamour on her. But mm-hmm. they were, in fact, physically present in this private restaurant dining room. And he was really putting the whammy on her. Mm-hmm. And maybe the dancing and the candles, and maybe that didn't necessarily literally happen. But he was willing her to see that and experience that. And that that's what I mean by gaslighting. I mean, I'm, I'm using that mm-hmm. very loosely. But, like you know, kind of putting the glamour on her and it's just, you know, and then she, she hits him and says, you know, I hate you. I hate you for what you did to her, but I love you, you know? And you're like, why? (laughs) Okay. It's Gary. I love that when she gets married, she's like, and now I understand my feelings from a prince. Now that you've had sex, you understand that you were really in lust with him. That's good. That's how feelings. I had pants feelings. Yeah. And that kiss. Let's talk about the split second blink if you miss it. Lucy and Mina making out in the rain. And I am not entirely sure that it wasn't just a Dracula wet dream. I think it happened, but it was, again, my my interpretation of most of the events is it happened, but because he made it happen. Or because he made everything weird and people acted. Again... I, I feel like the show was so inspired by this movie because it's like they took that one moment and said, let's make a giant subplot out of that. Oddly, that works better than it does in the movie. Yeah. Actually putting some thought into that, actually, that that is the one thing I think wor- really worked in the TV show. I yeah. think we can move on to the show. Full right. Steam. I feel like we've been kind of edging towards it, towards it and going, <laughs> don't want to. And <laughs> I, I really should. Katie McGrath's performance owes something to the or the writing of her character owes something to this idea of Lucy as very outgoing sophisticated gets around a little bit well like or or is sexually curious whether she's actually done anything or not like when um, Lucy on the show it's the um, the fencing tournament Mm -hmm. and she tells I think it's Arthur. I want to say it was the Arthur stand-in if it wasn't Alistair. 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 Yeah, it was kind of the Arthur stand-in. And she kind of whispers to him, like, if you win, here's what your reward will be. And he goes, seriously? (laughs) (laughs) I don't know what she offered him precisely. But, like, that to me is a very Coppola movie Lucy moment. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the, the grin she gives him. Would yeah. and I'm quoting some book somewhere would shame a red dragon. Yeah, it's delightful, kind of, because <laughs> <laughs> because she owns it, 
And Katie owns it. And... I love I love her in the show. I really mm-hmm. do. I I got really pissed off at what they did to that. Even establishing the baseline of she is actually in love with Mina, which again I feel you can justify from the letters they write to each other in the book. I, yeah. I'll go with it. But they then just jerk her around with the whole, you know. Now I'm going to try to sleep with Jonathan to get my revenge on everybody. And now Dracula's going to send Lady Jane to, you know, persuade her to all these shenanigans. I just was like, just you two make out and run off and cut out the middlemen and just, just, I'm done with this. You two leave and leave all of these men to just keep scheming at each other. I don't even care anymore. Go hunt vampires. Go be lesbians. I don't care. Just go. Just get out. (laughs) Yeah, I'll watch your show. I'll watch a show about you. I'm done with these people. Take Renfield. I, I maintain that there was there are two possibilities that went on with the show. Either Cole Haddon, who was the creator slash showrunner, had enough plot for four episodes and told the told NBC, yeah, I've got this all wrapped up for the ten, and never actually got round to it and realized they had to do something with that. Or he really wanted to make a show set in Victorian England about this in this. American businessman who comes over and messes with the class system, with the advancement of technology, and all of these issues about culture, the US-UK divide. And he couldn't get that made, and he's like, shit, what if I add vampires? And then they were like, genius, let's do it. So there, I feel like that was what was going on, because I would watch the show about the Nikola Tesla stand-in who comes over to Britain and messes with all the people who think that he isn't upper class enough to deal with this. I think that's really cool. I would have watched that. It was that they just completely massacred the characters as we know them from pretty much any other adaptation or original version ever. Mm-hmm. Like, what they did with Van Helsing was so upsetting to me. That he's just, like, beating people to death in the brain. That's just something he does. Like, when you're sitting there going, he's got two unconscious small children in front of him, and you are legitimately concerned he's about to kill them with a hammer. I legitimately thought they were going to have him do that just to show how far he'd gone. And they're like, oh, no, no, okay, we'll just have him vampire them and burn them alive with their father. That's fine. We'll just do that. That's okay. That's better. I just, oh, my God. This whole show made me so angry. And I think one of the reasons it made me angry was that it was just good enough that you could see where it could have gone. Mm-hmm. Whereas if it had just been rock oh, bottom yeah. terrible. I we were care. so hopeful because when it first started, we were like, well, this Renfield is really kind of awesome. And Lady Jane has, has these really hot outfits. Like, I wanted that red day dress. That was all, that was a really sexy day dress. And okay, I could, I could see where this is going. And, you know, Jonathan Reese Myers is kind of sexy. And, it's, and then it just, it didn't go yeah. Anywhere where we wanted it to go. Yeah, I, it immediately you... started to stall after we had recorded our podcast on yes. the Because <laughs> I think we were four or five episodes in, right? I think yeah. I remember us being about that. Yeah. And we're like, well, I want to see where it goes next. There's clearly potential here. And I think that's what hurts most is if a show is really, really terrible, you can watch it and have a great time. If it's great, you can watch it and have a great time. But if you can see these moments where you're like, no, no, you should have done this. This character should be doing that. Why is this happening? Then it just becomes really depressing. I actually got angry at episode three. That is that is where I, I didn't consciously stop recapping there. But it was when they killed the gay couple off. Yeah. Both sides of it in the same episode that I was just mm. like, what are the you doing? The fact that that happened, because they had the two seers as well, who I believe were, the two, uh, there were people of color that could see Dracula as well, and they were offed very quickly too. And I think that happened either in the same episode as the gay couple being offed, or the episode after. And that and was also... Was like, oh, the yeah. big episode where 
where Lucy became very obviously in love with Mina with that that strange Brian Jonestown massacre song, which I actually like the way they use that because it was like the past and the future and the present collapsed in all together in one moment. I really did like that. But it's her very longingly like touching Mina's face. And that's when it kind of became explicit that that's where they were going to go with it. And that whole episode was just like, what what are you even doing? Why why are you people trying and failing so badly? But and I like not- the anachronistic elements as well. I mean, we talked about it with the first episode, like half the costumes they're wearing, they're not period appropriate. Mm-hmm. And the things, that they, some of the way that they act, some of the things that they say and things, but I didn't mind that so much. I thought that that was really interesting. But if you're going to do all these things, like everything else you're doing on this show, go all out. There was levels where they're trying to be far too restrained which becomes really boring and then they want to be too extreme like they do with Van Helsing and it's just an awkward mishmash that didn't work I was willing to give them enough like assumption of good faith that whole when you'd have moments like the daddy wouldn't buy me a Bow Wow song where I was like when you want to know your shit you know it that's that's incredible and so when we had all these very 40s kind of looking outfits I was like okay they're they're easier to get around in you know, it's probably easier for a modern audience than to have huge bustles. And, okay, I see where you're going with this. They look good. I love their dresses. I'll, I'll go with it. Because you clearly know what you're talking about when you want to know what you're talking about. So that's mm-hmm. that's totally fine. But the other thing that got me was just how much gore there was. I actually had nightmares about this show. I recapped Hannibal and had nightmares about this show. This show. I just, it was just so, it seems weird that I would be like, well, this show had really gratuitous violence, but like, I felt like it did. they blew off somebody's head on camera. They did, for like no reason. It was somebody who was in the show for all of 30 seconds. Mm. There was like no, no, and they never talked about it again. It wasn't like, you know, Hannibal, where they sit there and talk endlessly about what did this mean emotionally for the people it happened to and who witnessed it and had to do, you know. We, we didn't do that at all. It was just, well, we just want to do the full Cronenberg, so here you go. <laughs> and and it was kind of, there was a point that was really, was it the first episode, second? It was super rapey. It's when Jane uh, walks in on Dracula vampiring a waitress at a cafe. And she's on the ground. And this is when he, like, sneaks around a corner right at the same time as she comes around the other corner. Like, it's almost, you know, comic, just how yeah. how close and miss it is. And her, the girl's skirt is, like, up to her waist, and you're like, what were you doing before? You st- Well, what is this? This is unnecessary. It was really gory. Her, like, throat was just totally gone. I just didn't understand why we had to have any of it. And the whole the whole show is full of that. And like, I'm not gonna complain about the sex because I'm like, you know, some good wholesome sex. That's that's fine. I I think it was used gratuitously, but it didn't give me nightmares. Yeah. You know, <laughs> have a good time. You know, but but that too was used in a very kind of extravagant look. We're gonna get away with kind of way. And they had interesting ideas, like when Dracula sets up uh, another vampire who was like his oldest friend and right-hand general, right, uh, to 
like he sets him up to be killed by Lady Jane so that she would be off his own like Dracula scent and think that that guy was really the old the only elder vampire in, in London. So you had this bit of like yeah they keep on saying that you know Dracula's not an anti-hero no he's the villain and very ruthless. So they could have really gone there. They just mm. it just yeah. also I mean Jonathan Reesmeyer said he is the villain. Do not be. Which I appreciate, because I think we do have to kind of remind people every now and then, the guy who the show is named after is actually a villain, and he's the bad guy. It, it It's happened before. But at the same time, it makes me... It's like they want us to root for Mina and... Dracula and Mina slash Alona. But how am I supposed to root for that in any way when we have all of this Lady Jane mess going on, when he you know, has her go use Lucy to screw over Jonathan and Mina, the two of them, you know, and then, oh God, how Lucy got vampired was horrible. I'm going to punish you. I set you up to do this in the first place, but you cheated with Jonathan and broke Mina's heart. And so, you know, you dirty whore, you deserve this basically. What was that? That was terrible. I actually stopped watching at that point. So now I'm kind of glad I did. Yeah, it was. Bad. I stuck it through to the better end. But I, yeah, it was a short enough series that I decided to give into the completionist urge. If it had been twenty-two episodes, I'm not sure I would have stayed with it. And and that was pretty close to the end. The scene where she then vampired her mother, and I don't know if she killed her or vampired her. That was super creepy, like in an incestuous kind of way. Mm-hmm. Oh, that was kiss not, me, mommy, kiss me. That was not good. No, but that was one of the few movies I've ever, versions I've ever seen where they involved Lucy's mother, who's a big part of the book. So I was like, oh, okay, her mother, this is great. We're going to, oh, we're not. No, no. (laughs) Because normally they just, you know, when they do the various play adaptations, there's no mothers at all. It's just, we'll collapse all these characters in to be the fathers. Mm -hmm. Does Quincy ever get to be in these adaptations? Except for the Coppola. Does he ever... No. no, they tend to no. cut him out, which is a shame, because I really want there to be a scene where Quincy turns up and meets Alexander Grace and is like, so what part of America are you from? Yeah. I can't <laughs> that accent. Well, they, like, maybe, Jonathan Rhys-Hires has many talents, but the American accent is not one of them. I, I still maintain that was intentional. It's just the only way I can make it work. <laughs> I mean, I appreciate that, you know, if it wasn't the greatest American accent, it was fake on the show. I yeah, mean, I... Yeah. I, I can get with that. They did kind of have a nod to the Quincy thing when they had him out in, out in the West and then, you know, Field yeah. got his racially charged beating in the episode that was nothing but an hour of torture that I could have lived without. But Yeah, that's one of the things that I really resented about the show as well, is when you cast Nonzo Inosi as Renfield, who's a brilliant actor in a role that he usually wouldn't get to play, and then you primarily had him, in, particularly in episode five, just be tortured. And tortured brutally. There was a scene where the woman who's torturing him has the nail in his fingernail. you know, And you know she's going to just jam that in. You don't see that. But the fact that it's alluded to is bad enough. Like, Renfield from episodes one to about four is great. He's just there giving advice and just being like, oh, what are you going to do now? Oh, God, why are you my boss again? <laughs> It just It's like they had the right idea to be like, you know, let's talk about how the issues of not being white in a very white patriarchal society. Let's talk about how tough it was 
to be gay and have to be under the radar. Let's talk about how, you know, all of these different things and then execute it in the worst way possible. Like, what is going on? I, I just... Yeah, the fact that people of colour and queer people at that time would have been subjected to as much violence is no excuse to have it be so gratuitous on the show. The It's historical does not count here. You've got yeah, you, your show about a vampire inventing electricity <laughs> do not get to play the historical part, card. At the same time, it was really badass to have you know Renfield as this American lawyer come in and tell the head of whatever company it was, I'm the one in charge here. Yeah. You speak to me or you're going to lose your job. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, and turn to Jonathan and go, don't defend me. Yeah, don't presume to defend me was one of my favorite lines. That was pretty yeah. badass. And it acknowledged the historical, you know, uh, situation. And even that episode five business, it wasn't even that they had the situation in the first place. It was that it was so graphically presented. Like, we just did not need a whole hour of that. We just really didn't. Why did we have that? And I had actually kind of hoped in the, you know, 15 minutes between Lord, what's his name, getting executed, which was so horrible, um, with the sword. I didn't even know you could stab somebody th- from that direction. How do you even do that? <laughs> Downwards. through the, How mm-hmm. do you even do that? I feel you know, like that's an actual a, historical thing, though. Sticking, yeah, it's, yeah, it probably need was. need a back arch a little yeah, I haven't thought about oh, this at all. God. But, you know, I sat there and I thought, what if they have, you know, the young lover join Grayson's opposition and have him try to, you know, revenge what happened? Or, no, not Grayson's. The man. Who was he? Maybe the Order of the Dragon. It was somebody's I mean. son. It was, he, the, the young lover was the son. It was the other Lord's son. Yeah. It was, yeah. I mean. I, I was having to stop and think who, who would be his enemy at that point. Because Grayson is the one who... Grayson you know, is Dracula. It's blew Lord their cover, but the Order is the one that executed. Yeah. You know, so he turns against one side or the other and starts working. You know, I was like, you could have had a really interesting character arc with Daniel Davenport. It could have been super interesting, but no. We'll just kill him, and that's fine. In we'll the just same kill episode. him, and then we'll still go, oh, look, I'm totally acknowledging LBGTQ characters in my show. Aren't you guys happy with that? And we're like, no. The exact phrasing was bad? Honest and complicated lives. And I was like, "Mm." Uh, how about gratuitous and bullshit deaths? I I mean, the people, particularly the actors, they all seemed really nice. They seemed to have really enjoyed being on the show. I feel really terrible, but at the same time, it's just, why did this happen? I I need to, like, issue a moratorium after this podcast that I will let this go from my life. <laughs> I just, I need, I need to be at peace. I need to be at peace. Winona Ryder needs to cut my head off, and I need to be at peace after this, <laughs> metaphorically speaking. And, okay. Yeah. You know which movie we accidentally skipped? The actual Van Helsing movie. The, the wasn't that your first <laughs> movies of fifteen minutes? I love that. Yes, movie. it was. Let's I let's think of happy memories for a second. Movie. Backtrack and happy thoughts. Oh, Roxila, that was just <laughs> screaming. <laughs> I cannot feel. <laughs> I am hollow. <laughs> I have no emotion. 
emotions! He bellows emotionally. He brings it. He brings the full ham. The the bacon has been brought to the table by Richard Roxburgh, and we love him for it. That and Hugh Jackman sponsored by L'Oreal. <laughs> and the ballroom scene, which is legitimately awesome. I, I'm still angry about the ending, though, because I guess they they thought they were gonna have a, they thought they were gonna have a franchise, and they were like, "Well, we need to have two dudes unencumbered by a love interest. We need to get them a new one next time." And I was like, "No, no, Faramir and Kate Beckinsale and you know Wolverine. Wolverine. What's a Wolverine at that point? But, you know. Wolverine tooling around, killing monsters. I'd watch eight movies of that. What? What are you doing? Just he just fell on her like." <laughs> That's how you're gonna kill her? What? Oh no, was... he was Wolverine by then. Was he? He oh, was. Okay. Oh, yeah. This was supposed to be his next big franchise, and it didn't quite work out. No, Which is like, what happens when you get Steven Sommers to direct it. That's all I'm saying. He popped his claws when he was a werewolf, and everybody went, oh my god, are you for real? That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. So he was definitely Wolverine by that point, yes. Yeah, the first X-Men movie was 2000, and this was 2004. Ah. Ten years ago. Oh. Ten, ten years ago. How far you've come, Hugh. Was Underworld after that? Uh, was Kate Beckinsale in the, already in the vampire world by that point? She was. Hang on a sec. We'll have to check. It was like I, the year previous yes. or the yeah. same. Yeah. Because it was already yes, 2003. Funny. Yeah, so it was all... It was were... already hilarious that she was a vampire killer. I remember this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> In high-heeled boots and a corset. In the same black corset that she wears as a vampire. Pretty much. I think it was a brown... Was it a brown corset? It's brown. I have a, I have a doll. doll. I would remember the doll. this. I remember this, okay? <laughs> and she had it was brown. Serious... It was underbust. And it didn't actually contain her boobs at all. At all. No, she actually said on set that they would like fall out when she was being you know, upside down, dangled from whatever. And she'd be like, could you just push that back in? Thank you. <laughs> like that literally happened more than once you know uh, that was the thing she had the cutest peasant jackets oh my god she had the best the best hair it 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 even curled after death it was the most amazing fantastic hair oh man <laughs> see that's why that. her and van helsing oh, were so yeah. perfect because hugh jackman's hair was fabulous in that movie it bounced it swished he was worth it shiny <laughs> My favorite thing in that movie is David Wenham as Carl, the like Igor stand-in for Van Helsing, even though there is actually an Igor in the movie. He has some good lines like, I'm a friar, not a, a monk. I can say damn it if I want to. I can go have <laughs> sex with women. It's okay. I'm a friar. You know, they're supposed to be rebooting it with Tom Cruise. I heard that vaguely and was like, Stop. How about no? How about no? No, what, Van Helsing? Yeah. Yeah. Why? I don't think Tom Cruise needs to do another vampire-related movie. He already did interview the vampire, and he was awesome in that. I think he works really well in sci-fi movies. I think that, you know, I saw Oblivion on cable and was like, huh, that was better than I expected. That that whole, you know, Edge of Tomorrow this weekend, I actually kind of wanted to see that. I think that's my, pretty my good. My friends have seen it, and they really loved it. They, they were far yeah. more impressed by it than they thought they were going to be, but it's not going to do it. By your friends, do you mean me and Raiden? Because we saw you <laughs> <laughs> yeah. sitting right here. We're sitting right male, here. Male, no, male friends from Scotland. <laughs> oh. Well, whatever. That, it was fun. It was a lot of fun. Don't bother yeah. paying for the 3D. I mean, sci-fi is a good look for him. I just don't... He's such an intensely modern movie star. 
that I just don't know that a Van Helsing thing would work for him at all in any way whatsoever. Your mission, should you choose to accept it? <laughs> I don't. The vampire overlord. I reject this mission. <laughs> I, I do not. And, you know, I still don't quite know how he managed to pull the stat off, but he did. He did. That was... So good in that movie. He, he really Anne is. Rice had to turn around and be like, actually, you're quite good. Sorry. Yeah. I I remember that was that movie came out just as I started finding my people and the geek crowd and the the people who just thought that Interview with the Vampire was the greatest book ever and oh my god how can they ruin it with Tom Cruise of all people and I'm like eh. granted I was 13 but I was still like eh. I mean he can act he has done it before have you seen Born on the Fourth of July like. How about we reserve a little bit of judgment? And that was the time I met the guy at the mall who claimed he was a real vampire. We could tell because he wasn't standing in direct sunlight. <laughs> so he was following the totally wrong folklore. Yes. <laughs> yeah, that, uh, the early 90s were a difficult time. <laughs> they, they were a very interesting time. I remember just an entire vampire craze. They had you know, the the dark Chanel nail polish that was, I think it was called Vamp. You can still get it. That was such a huge thing. The really dark lipstick. Like, 92 to about 94, 95 had a huge vampire trend. Mm-hmm. Like, classic black gothic, not this Twilight Was Vampire mask, the Masquerade popular around this time? Oh, yeah. Yes. Yep. Yep. Yes. Yep. It was. A little, even starting a little before that. I want to say late 80s, maybe, at least. Mm. I want to say I'm not sure offhand. Um, yeah, I mean that that was a time. There's stuff I can look back and go, that's so 1993. Like I can like pinpoint it to the year. It's so yep. Forever was, Night, still the best amazing. vampire show. Really oh man, it was. Uh, vampire the Masquerade was released in '91. <sighs> Good times. Good times. So. Let's let's pull this into right now, like this meant well tomorrow night, kind of. Um, the the show that Dracula could have been, and the the movie that the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen really wanted to be, is now being realized on Showtime as Penny Dreadful. The fucking teacup. <laughs> Alina has some feelings about teacups. Is that in the first episode? Um, I think it's in the third. Well, there's a she breaks one for sure in like third or fourth. Okay, because I haven't watched. I mean, you can talk about spoilers. I don't mind. I haven't watched past the first episode because things are terrible and I have to catch up. So when you were talking about the teacup, I was like, what? What? What'd she do? It's it's in the uh, credit sequence though. So when the the very first, so I marathoned the four in preparation for this episode, and yeah, the credits had a teacup, and I'm like, Hannibal just finished. Yeah, (laughs) no more teacups. Just like we're done with the teacups breaking and metaphors and. Well, it was like watching True Detective and being like, Antlers, guys, (laughs) you're about a year late on this one. Sorry. Well, Will Graham is from Louisiana, I'm just saying. He is. And I I have said that I I really enjoy 
the unintentional effect of like Matthew McConaughey character being like real Graham, Will Graham in the real world where nobody wants to hear it. <laughs> Shut the fuck up, Russ. Don't talk like that in front of my kids. What did I tell you about not talking in the car? Shut the fuck <laughs> up. I really enjoyed kind of the humor of that um, unintentional juxtaposition. I, I really enjoyed what I saw of Penny Dreadful. I And I know Dorian Gray shows up. and uh, oh, bless. Uh, The yes, best thing about Dorian Gray is that they don't even bother. He wears 21st century, like, black leather pants. Hot Topic <laughs> outfits. He's like, Marty Robbie. He's walking on there with his stripy pink and black waistcoat. And he's like, I survived the Spider-Man musical. I can do whatever the hell I want. <laughs> That's a character, I'll give it to you, you know? This is the man that fucks a woman with consumption to Tristan and Isolde by Wagner. He is not going for substitute. And I love that piece of music, and I was like, oh, great, okay, we've got to get Okay, so, Kaylee, have you, because I think you're the only one who's seen, like, I haven't actually seen the Warhols' Flesh for Frankenstein and Blood for Dracula, but I've seen Carl Caldwin's <laughs> review of them. So Flesh for Frankenstein has that quote so as dorian gray is is having sex with the woman with a prostitute i don't know if she's technically anyway, the woman with she's consumption oh yeah she coughs all over his face and then he's all like i've never fucked a corpse before and he's so into it and all i'm thinking is udo kier to know life you have to fuck death in the gallbladder which is possibly the greatest line ever put in any film ever what? i want udo kier he's to fucking, be he's in this got the um Body. He's got the uh, bodies that he's going to make the perfect couple. It's there's a lot of Aryan subtext it's the in this. Frankenstein one. Yeah. yeah, this is a Frankenstein one, and he decides to basically there's like the wound is open and he's just having sex with this wound and he says in his extremely exaggerated German accent, "To no death you have to fuck life in the gallbladder." It comes out of nowhere. It's brilliant. <laughs> this movie was also made in three G, so there's just like blood and guts and organs <laughs> flying at the screen. It is fabulous. It's Andy Warhol. Fuck. <laughs> We will send you Kyle Colgren's review of Flesh for Frankenstein so you can understand it. Um, but they're actually really interesting. I don't want to understand. <laughs> what? But that's why I really want Udo Kier to just show up in Penny Dreadful. He could just walk in and play himself. It would be perfect. No. I'm, I'm still rooting for him to be... Um, uh, Count Lecter, so him or Stellan Skarsgård. No! <laughs> oh yeah, we we fan Stellan Skarsgård. No, <laughs> we broke Cleo. We broke Cleo. Yes. <laughs> you had to go really far to do that. Okay, let's, let's note that fact. <sighs> anyway, back to <laughs> dreadful. <laughs> What very dreadful, like, what actually broke me was um, Frankenstein and his monsters. Yeah. Oh, my God. So, like, the heartbreak, and then, like, it turns into real heartbreak. Because I didn't, I try not to look too many spoilers, but I ended up seeing the list of characters and actors. So, it, it did have, you know, Rory Kinnear as the monster. And then we have Frankenstein in the first episode, and he, the the you know he's alive it's alive it's alive that kind of moment that that's not Rory Kinnear I'm sitting there going like but that's not Rory Kinnear what's going on and two episodes later I'm kind of regretting asking because it turned out to be really sad yeah it was also really really homoerotic the whole show that that show has no sub 
subtext. It only has text. (laughs) But basically, the first two episodes are this really brash Frankenstein. And I like that they actually have Frankenstein being kind of a dick, because that's one of the things that people tend to forget from the books, is he is kind of a bastard. So you have him with his new creation, who he calls Proteus, and he's basically teaching him to go about life, and it's really sweet. And then his first creation turns up, who is basically Rory Kinnear in goth mode. Um, and then for the basically about half of episode three, Rory Kinnear monologues about how he hates humanity and how he's off. He's been off being an, uh, an actor and stage assistant who has been named Caliban. Like I can think of reasons why you shouldn't have called him Caliban, but okay. Yeah. And he's been hanging around with actors, including Alan Armstrong, and there's a lot of monologuing, and they keep talking. Basically, they're saying the, the, the line is something like how. Well, you should come and join us on the actor. You've got a really awful face, which means that you're perfect for the theatre. <laughs> which might be the best backhanded compliment on the show. <laughs> and I really like Rory Kinnear as an actor, so I'm always glad when he gets a chance to, you know, show off in a, a, a really decent role on TV or film, because he's kind of oh, usually sidelined. It's very, you know, Frankenstein's monster is like this deep philosopher. Oh, yeah. It's like, it's aw- it's amazing. I love it. He's done his research. <laughs> I just really love Eva Green. Like I'm, yeah. I'm oh, she has found the role that she has met, been waiting oh, yeah. for like years. Oh, that medium scene. Oh, oh she was so hearing god. about this. Yeah. Oh my god, it's incredible. I mean, if if she doesn't get nominated for an Emmy, I'm going to, you know, go to LA and flip somebody's table. Oh, I want her to get just nominated, random- and then I want that entire monologue to be like. And nominated with every reference to incest and whatever else was in that scene that I don't even know. That scene was so crazy. Incest and dysentery and I'm shitting blood and fucking her cunt and... Yeah. What? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 This is on Showtime. You can get away with that. Oh, yeah. 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 Well, I'm going to have an entertaining Sunday ahead. Oh, yeah. And then... I mean, we have vampires, uh, ancient Egyptian vampires, I'd like to point out. This this goes into ancient Egypt for its lore. Yeah, I, I did see that in the first episode where I was like, oh, okay, so we're... Which, I mean, Egyptology, that whole interest at the... What is it said? 1891? Yeah. I mean, yeah. that that's about right. So it's like, yeah, oh, that's okay. timely. Oh. I see where we're going with this. Okay. Oh, and uh, by the way, Cleo, the other medium in that scene is Narcissa Malfoy. Yeah. yeah. Good times. Good times. And then I really, okay, this is a pet theory I have right now, but we've, we've chatted with Raiden. She agrees that uh, with uh, Josh Hartnett's character, Ethan Chandler, the show is basically oh, yeah. like, turn to page 394. <laughs> <laughs> yes, his name is Wolfie McWolfie Pants, the wolf. <laughs> yeah, he's, a, I am. Yeah. I mean,. So There's also the possibility that the show is saying, look, look over there. It's a werewolf. See the werewolf? He's over there and doing it so hard so you don't see the werewolf coming on your right. And that's why you never get into the first cab. So I don't even know anymore. <laughs> I just remember the, the episode I did see was really blatant with the male nudity even and i was like oh well this is showtime i i see what we get away with on on premium cable i yes. forgot <laughs> yeah um i mean we've seen quite a lot of naked 
uh, Billy Piper, but those who saw any of Secret Diary of a Call Girl, it's nothing really. We've seen seem- that all. <laughs> I mean, I'm more concerned about her accent than anything else because for some reason she's Irish. Yeah, and she I've heard is about that. Irish. Yeah, well, she's Northern Irish. She's going for Belfast. Well, she's she's going for it. Um, <laughs> I I like Billy Piper a lot, and I actually think that she's. I mean, accent. So I can I can take bad accents. I survived Keanu Reeves, so I'm okay with that. Uh, I I just enjoy watching all of these British actors pop up because Timothy Dalton is Sir Malcolm Murray. Do you see where they're she's going with that surname? So dashing. <laughs> Still, wow. I was like, that's the. Oh yeah, I totally get. Yeah. That's James Bond. <laughs> But you uh, also was, have, like, Alan Armstrong pops up. Simon Russell Beale is the They actually had Van Helsing in a short scene as, like, a blood specialist. In episode three or four. Four. Hmm. Four, yeah. yeah. So they already bring in, brought in Van Helsing. They've pretty much identified that, yeah, Malcolm Murray and, like, he's lost daughter Mina, but also a son, Peter. But, uh, Raiden, was it you who said, like, he's very uh, Alan Quartermain? Oh yeah, he's Absolutely. totally he's he's, the he's totally Alan Quartermain with yeah. the serial numbers filed off. <laughs> I even noticed that just from the the club that he met Frankenstein at. Mm-hmm. I I was ashamed of myself that I did not immediately figure out that Frankenstein was Frankenstein the moment he asked Ethan about electricity. <laughs> I was my headspace was still the Dracula show, and I was like, okay, Alexander Grayson, get over it, you know. But I realized at the end of the show, I was like, oh damn it, that's what that was about. And I noticed they didn't say that Timothy Dalton's name was Murray for a good bit into the first episode, and the moment that name came up, I was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. whoa I know, I was I was watching your live tweet on that, and that particularly delighted me. Like, oh, hold up, hold up, yeah, okay. Wait, wait I, what? <laughs> I see where we're going with this now. Yeah, they, I didn't... I didn't realize exactly... Like, the only premise I knew of the show was... Uh, Victorian Gothic, there are vampires sometimes, and I didn't quite catch the Mina Murray thing. Like, it niggled at the back of my head, and there was like something going, Wait, wait, you're, you're missing something. And then when Frankenstein introduced himself, I went, Wait a second. Well, given that Is I that know- what show I'm in? <laughs> I knew that Dorian Gray was going to show up at some point, so, and I, I may have heard something about Mina or Dracula or something, and I kind of picked up that it was going to be a League of Extraordinary Gentlemen kind of mashup. I, I picked that up early enough that I went, oh, okay, I see what we're doing. I was actually surprised that Josh Hardnett was not a literary character. I kind of thought they might do the Tom Sawyer thing with him. Hmm. Which, I mean, I have issues... Man, I have issues with everything involving League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. The further I got away from it, I went, wait, the, the graphic novel isn't any better. Oh my god, what's going on? Adding Dorian Gray and Tom Sawyer to the movie actually made sense to me. I got where we were going with that. So I, I liked that they were doing, that they took that idea to the show and went, okay, it's a good idea, let's use that. So I don't know if Ethan Chandler is supposed to kind of be like a there's some literary character I'm not thinking of that he's supposed to be modeled after. I can't, or or Vanessa Ives for that matter. I can't quite pin, but then I, I haven't seen the medium mm-hmm. thing yet, so maybe I'll 
figure that out when I see that. But I just heard that Billy Piper is super Irish. And I said, watch <laughs> yeah. out for that. And I said, oh, okay. She's very Irish. Yes. One of the things I really like about the show is it, the, the, the mood and tone of it feels very theatrical to me. And that makes a lot of sense because this show is written by John Logan, who has done a lot of work on stage as well as doing things like Skyfall. He wrote a bunch of plays that have won Tony Awards and things like that. Uh, but it feels kind of grounded in a way that something like Dracula didn't. I'm trying to find a way to make this make sense. But it, there's when they use the monster and they go to the vampires and stuff, it's used sparingly enough that it feels relatively natural. Mm-hmm. It doesn't feel like it's been shoehorned in. It doesn't feel like it's not... It doesn't feel like it jars with the rest of the the atmosphere that they're going with this world. And the fact that there's a, a consistency to it... Um, as we've seen with the NBC Dracula, it's harder to do than one would think. And it's also beautifully shot. Mm-hmm. They have pumped the money to. I mean, the pilot episode was directed by Sam Mendes, so to give you an idea of how much they thought, you know, how much they cared about this project. I, who actually, I know there was a director involved in it, and I said, now I know why it looks the way it does. Um, Slate wasn't Slate involved? I no. don't think so. Um, Juan Antonio Bayona, who made The Orphanage. Bayona was who I was trying to think of, yes. Mm-hmm. I, I, I believe like two or three of the directors of the show so far are also female directors, which is pretty rare in mm-hmm. big-budget big television shows like this. Yes, yes and no. I think there is definitely a sea change happening in that, because a lot of Yay. the Mad Men directors have been women. There are a number of Game of Thrones directors that are women. Um, so I, I think we really are seeing a change in that direction. Um, it hopefully will translate into changes in movie directors as we go. Knock on, knock on wood. Mm-hmm. And also more of the writers, hopefully. Although about three of the writers of the NBC Dracula were women. So, you know, sometimes it's just hard to work with what you have. You know, we don't blame you, ladies. It's okay. Yeah. I am very excited to see where Cole Haddon goes with his next TV show, which is a version of Robin Hood, where the Sheriff of Nottingham and Robin Hood are the same person. That was what the Ridley Scott movie was originally going to be. I know. I wish it had been that as well, because I can remember zero of the Ridley Scott movie, and I've seen it twice. I can remember it. <laughs> I can remember a quite a bit. That's about it. what I used to study for my civil procedure exam. I passed with one of the highest grades in the class, so it clearly worked. I I loved Robin Hood as you know, because it, I, again, it's the things that come out when you're a, a young teenager that really stick with you. <laughs> and uh, as we keep saying, and the Kevin Costner Robin Hood came out when I was about 12. Okay, I spent like the, ne- the summer when it was on HBO or whenever, watched it like every single day because it was there okay like a love of alan rickman was inculcated very early on also i had a lot more patience for the kevin costner thing the non-accent as a 13 year old you know like (laughs) you're not gonna care as much when your standards are kind of low i don't care so much about accents when everyone has decided let's not do an accent but when it's like half and half then it just annoys me. phantom of the opera madame giri who's 
<laughs> I can bet she did that just to piss the off only fr- The only French person in France is Miranda Richardson. <laughs> there you go. Uh, no, but um, I, I was just appalled that they did not actually get to Sherwood Forest until, like, the end voiceover of the movie. I was so... If we knew was it was an pr- origin prequel and not actually Robin Hood... I, I didn't know, and I was vexed. I was very vexed. <sighs> mm-hmm. Yeah. I wore out my Robin Hood tape. <laughs> it's good times. <laughs> so, I, I sincerely hope we're not here a year from now going... Yeah, Penny Dreadful. It, we did the we did the podcast. <laughs> please don't do that, Showtime. Please, yeah, please don't good. do that show. Come on. I'm be interested to see where season two goes because every episode of season one is written by John Logan. Is he going to write all of season two, or is he going to bring new people in? Is it going to be a ten episode season? Um, that's the plan. I think it's eight. Is it eight? It's eight. You're right. It's eight. Because I realized I was like, you've already let half the season go. You really need to catch up on this. That's how I was with True Detective. I think I I marathoned five, and I was like, what? It's only eight. <laughs> catch up. Catch up. I which is even shorter than Dracula. I I think once you've gotten this far in, it it might be disappointing if they don't stick the landing in the last episode. Mm-hmm which I have kind of felt happened a few times, but I, I think this show is probably solid enough that it's it's going to be okay. I, I don't think we've, you know, we've jinxed it in any way. I, I oh, think we haven't mentioned how charming Simon Russell Beale is in the Egyptologist he's, role. He's having so much fun. He's doing that thing that you can do when you are a British actor of a certain level of prestige at a certain age. <laughs> where you can just have so much fun. I, I would love to see more just eccentric Egyptology moments on the show. I would be perfectly okay with that. The fact that yeah. it's juggling so many like famous creatures and mythos in this one show and it doesn't feel overcrowded in the way that you get with like superhero movies that have so many villains and things like that, mm-hmm. I think is a testament to you know, some serious skill on behalf of the writer. And also of the the um, the general crew and directors for making it work. I hope that that continues. I hope that they have. I hope that he didn't decide to you know jump any vampire sharks or anything by the end of it. Mm. But who knows? I said that about Dracula. So <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, Optimism. Though, Optimism. I I think we really. I certainly knew deep in my heart that we were going to have a problem with Dracula when the Comic Con posters came out. <laughs> uh, yeah, that Those is true. really strange oh Photoshop monstrosities with everybody having huge hair and thousand yard stares and bees for some oh reason. God, the, the weird kaleidoscope looking. Yeah, I, I yeah, knew in my the, heart. The one and with the piles of naked women. That that was a separate, oh, yeah, that. entirely separate endeavor. I I think I knew in my heart we were in trouble, and just didn't want to admit it. I I haven't had that moment with Penny Dreadful in any way. So, 
If you Google Dracula NBC poster, a bunch of Hannibal pictures come up, or at least it did on my computer, which I think might just be a, a, a subtle signal to go and watch that instead. I mean, I I have it on my Dracula tag on my Tumblr. I have those posters. I saw them yesterday again. They're still terrifying. They look nothing like the show. That's the weird thing. Yeah. Like, I don't know what you thought you were advertising with those, but it wasn't we yeah, I want to see that show that the posters accurately reflects. <laughs> I, I don't know. I was kind of frightened of it. I, <laughs> the wind tunnel hair and the, I don't know, the bees? Why bees? There's no bees. This bothered me. <laughs> <laughs> they look like little cut-out dolls where you can just cut out the clothes and layer them on top of the person. Mm. Yeah. Oh, there's, there's the bees. And the, that hair looks like it has just been stuck on. Yeah. And then Here's... there's parasols as well, because parasols and bees. Yes, naturally. Yeah, no, they absolutely look like paper dolls. It's weird, like standing there with the arms straight at the side. and There were no wolves. That's just complete, you know, false advertising. I wanted wolves and I got no wolves. There are wolves in Penny Dreadful. Woohoo! Mean, is that Mina? I can't even tell which one's Mina and which one's Lucy, hardly. Like, Lucy that's has the really crazy blonde hair that's a blob on one side. What is yeah. that in the jars in front of Van Helsing? Are those, like, kidneys or fetuses or something? Those blind <laughs> cave fish? That really is kind of what it looks like. See, Thomas Kretschmann in that picture, you know he's just thinking, this is still better than the Dario Argento's Dracula. <laughs> Which I haven't seen, but it does feature a really bad CGI playing mantis, so I know I have to see it at some point. Oh. <laughs> this has just been an educational day for me. <laughs> the, re the reviews for Dario Argento's Dracula were hilarious. It's They are saying it's just one of the worst films ever, which that's how bad it is. Then again, the only Dario Argento film I've seen is his version of Phantom of the Opera, which features, like, rap, rap rape, so... Yeah. That's a fun film. I've, I've heard <laughs> about that one a lot. Yeah. I... Ooh. Uh... <laughs> it's available to watch for free because it is now in the public domain, apparently. So. I think what just amazes me is that I could imagine what I thought a Dario Argento Dracula would be like. And then you bring in Praying Mantis, and I realize I had no idea at all. <laughs> what? Yeah, I, if, if Argento had made Dracula, like, 30 years ago, that would have been one thing. But I feel like he has just given up at this moment in time. So, ex although he is still very keen about filming his daughter naked, so... Ew. Yeah, because I'm like, Asia Argento is in this, and yeah. I was like, is she a daughter or his uh, daughter? Uh. She's in the Phantom of the Opera as well. She's playing the, the Christine character, and she, her top just constantly falls down for no real reason. I mean, it's it must. I don't know what issues are going on in that household, but I feel like I may have understood them a little more if I just watched all their movies. <laughs> Okay. Well, well, I think now we've talked everybody's ear off. We really have. Um, oh, God, that really is a giant praying mantis. <laughs> <laughs> what? 
see if I can find a video. What? No! No! No video! No! <laughs> okay, so gallbladders and praying mantis, that's what it took to break you? <laughs> it wasn't the gallbladder. It was the fucking the gallbladder. <laughs> was it also a dead gallbladder? Because that was the impression I got. No, here's uh, the real issue is that he does that, and then the, the servant to whom he... Uh, like says the line, then goes like, doesn't he like go and kill a woman just so he could do it? Yeah, he decides he has to go and test out himself. It's like, well, it's my boss. No. Is it? it must be. No, don't. No, what? No. No, what? Yeah. <laughs> I've had a really rough two weeks. Just... <laughs> my my ability to cope is. Low, it's real low. <laughs> Happy thoughts, Praying. Cleo. Plug Athena's daughters. Praying mantis. <laughs> yeah. Come back to us. Come back. So. <laughs> ooh, so. I have my my black ribbon, you know, um, vampire novel I've been working on for eleven or twelve years, and I. I don't even necessarily feel all that terrible because it started out as a serial I was posting in 2003. So it's not like nobody's ever seen anything about it. it uh, it's not, it wasn't good, but you know, my point is, you know, I, I have actually put some of it out there and now I have written a short story about Rose's mother and it's a ghost story and it's in the an- Athena's daughters anthology. It's a, uh, already out as an ebook and the print version uh, is coming out in July so that should be next month I think you can go ahead and pre-order that this is the Kickstarter we had that was uh, just tremendously amazingly successful I, I think it was one of the most successful fiction anthology Kickstarters they've ever had um and wow, that praying mantis just <laughs> I'm I'm struggling here. Um <laughs> my blood sugar's low and the mantis is fake. It's rough. Um could be worse, could be real. Um so so that's really it's it's a it's a it's Genre stories, but it's all kinds of different genres. I think there's fantasy, there's sci-fi. So I've kind of got this Victorian ghost story, and which is a very you know traditional genre. And the uh, original version of it, which I may actually write out and redo, was Rose telling a story that her mother had told to her, and she's telling it to her friends on Christmas Eve because, as opposed to telling scary stories on Halloween here. Um, Telling ghost stories on Christmas was a, a very big, you know, Victorian tradition. Not not just actually telling them, but like as a format. I know uh, Jerome K. Jerome had some, you know, uh, Christmas Eve ghost stories as kind of the the frame for the stories. I mean, that's why you have um... oh Dickens, help me Christmas, uh, Christmas Carol. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> I mean, th- that is the tradition of, you know, having a ghost story 
on Christmas, printed around Christmas. And so um, what we ended up doing was taking the actual story that Rose tells about her mother. And it's actually about how her mother decided to accept her father's proposal, marriage proposal. And tell it as the story itself, just, just by itself. And it's kind of also inspired by stories like Turn of the Screw, where you're not sure what's going on, who, I mean, you do find out it's not that ambiguous. But, you know, um, her mother Josephine, her best friend Polly, a woman who owns this house, who wants to get out of it, but can't bring herself to leave. Who is haunting it? Why? This woman herself is almost as haunted as the house is. And it's trying to get down to the bottom of things and kind of learn to move on and make choices you're afraid to make. And I had a a really great time writing it. And I, you know, uh, Rose appears as a, as a child kind of at the, the beginning and the end. But I still think it's it's kind of an interesting way to, to get the characters and the universe kind of out there for people to see a little bit. So that is already out if you want to read it electronically and be out. It's, it's illustrated. The, the anthology, you know, each story has uh, an illustration with it. And so that'll be out in July. Way to break me right before I have to, like, describe an actual, you know, <laughs> professional pro- project. And I get to be subverbal through, it, it's a thing and a story. And I don't know. What's, <laughs> Mantis, what? <laughs> well, I think the uh, theme of this particular episode is sorry, not sorry. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be fun coming up with a title for this episode. I have a there are of so many possibilities. I have a couple of contenders. <laughs> I'm oh. feeling like I'm not going to be struggling like I was last month. <laughs> but thank you very much, Glee, for joining us. I it's think awesome. I was glad to be here. <laughs> I think. <laughs> We're very happy that you are our senior carnivore correspondent. <laughs> Mountain lions are not a vegetable, you know? <laughs> <laughs> We have to accept this fact. <laughs> it's a truth universally acknowledged. <laughs> For anyone who doesn't understand that reference, we came up with a crack theory that uh, that Edward Cullen is actually Hannibal Lecter's disowned and disgraced son. You know it's true. Once I start explaining it to people, they're like, my God. Exactly. <laughs> Exactly, it totally works. And we'll link to that in the show notes because yes, it's, it's hilarious. <laughs> it's truly genius. Brian Fuller should really hire all of us. I'm still on the high from our fan casting of, you know, Uncle Lecter and Lady Murasaki because I think we're brilliant. We are brilliant. We are. And also think Stellan Skarsgård is a possibility that could do it, so Brian Fuller should really look into it. He is friends with Matt Mickelson, so, you know. Yeah. Scandinavia is going to take over the world. <laughs> I can live with that. And that's okay. 
All right. All right. So we're gonna let Cleo. We're gonna release Cleo back into the wild, as we do every six months, and let her go find some food. Like an unexpected possum. (laughs) (laughs) And we will be back next month with a topic of some kind, possibly a guest. Maybe. Um, you can email us at anglofees at gmail.com. You can follow us on Twitter at anglofees. You can follow us on Tumblr at anglofees.tumblr.com. Do you see a pattern here? And on our webpage, you can find our individual Twitters and Tumblrs if you care to know what we're thinking at any given time. You just want to be weird, stocky people. I don't know. You can leave comments on the webpage or leave a review at iTunes. We have a couple. They're very nice. They're very lovely. Thank you. And we will see you later. Happy Bye. summer, everybody. Bye. Bye. Until then. Bye. Cleo? Oh. <laughs> I, have to, I, I get to say goodbye? You do get to say goodbye. It, it was it was genuinely nice beyond so you guys have a good summer bye you have been listening to anglophies a made of fail production <laughs>